The Koi Gig Pod. I then had to then fake an injury because I didn't want to tell people that I was pregnant until the 12 weeks gone. That's, it's mad to think of really, it seems kind of archaic. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Ah, there we are. A very good morning to you. Welcome along. It's Monday morning. We are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Slightly overawed by what was one of those weekends that hasn't really finished just yet. Uh, big NFL game tonight. Tom Brady versus the Dallas Cowboys. And that's the uh, least of the things that we have to talk about today. Because literally every, every second that you looked up from your phone to the telly and from your telly back to the phone, something amazing had happened. Colin, good morning to you. Sure, good morning. Shane, good morning to you. Good morning. How are things? Very good. Yeah. I mean... Uh, normally we would have like a conversation about some stuff but are we are we not going to talk about anything at the top I think you can just do the coming up and then we can go straight to performance rankings because okay, we'll so that. much happened here's what's coming up between now and 10am this morning we're going to get straight into the performance rankings to give ourselves a little bit of extra time Daniel Harris is going to talk to us about a seismic Manchester derby we have the sports news which will focus specifically on uh, Kerry versus Tyrone in Croke Park which I mean anyway we'll get into that in a moment uh, that's uh, coming your way at half eight and then after that Alan Quinn is going to join us an incredible weekend of rugby Ulster not dead Munster they're back and uh, Leinster still pretty good uh, Jenny Claffey is going to join us at ten past nine Nick Kyrgios is out that's the breaking news that's some of the breaking news from Australia the other breaking news is that Eddie Jones is going to be the Australia coach for five years. So, England versus Australia in the World Cup. It's going to happen. The sporting gods, they love us. I know. Who knew? All right, it's time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. A lot to get into here, lads. Yeah. There's a lot to get into. I was getting messages. Getting messages on Twitter last night. Um, Shane put down in the performance rankings. They lost the uh, Mechanic Cup semi-final on penalties to Derry at the weekend. But they're back, are they? They're back. They're back at it. Donegal in the first round of the championship. See what Let's happens see. when you get a unified camp. Anything is possible. Exactly. Now, they didn't quite make it. I sat yesterday on the couch from four o'clock until almost midnight. So I watched the North London Derby at half four. I then proceeded to watch the Bills get over the Dolphins. And then I watched the uh, the tail end of the Master Snooker final as Judd Trump beat Mark Williams. So, I mean, my eyeballs hurt, my head hurts, and I don't know where to start, but let's start the performance rankings in the red with uh, the two Merseyside clubs. Misery side, you could even say. Hey. What? Uh, so, yeah, well, maybe... Where we'll were you when we were doing up the graphics, Shane? Yeah, I know. Misery side just fit perfectly, didn't it? Uh, and it's one of the stories that's kind of gone hidden uh, across the weekend because there was so much else happening, but... Uh, Liverpool, um, Jurgen Klopp's comments after the 3-0 defeat at Brighton, it was bad, really bad. That's, that's the, the first comment that he, that he came out with. It should have been seven. It should have been. Um, an embarrassment, a lot of Liverpool fans I'm, I'm mates with were kind of like, this is the worst performance there has ever been <laughs> from Liverpool, which was a bit of a stretch, but uh, you'd certainly say it's up there with poor performances under Jurgen Klopp, um, for sure. Uh, after 18 league games, Liverpool have scored fewer goals, conceded more, won fewer points and have a worse goal difference than at this stage of any previous full top-flight campaign under Klopp. So 
Is this the worst moment for Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp? Potentially. Um, what is it, ninth in the Premier League table at the moment? Um, and not only that, but as you say, Jared, like outplayed from start to finish at the Amex. Could have been much worse. Evan Ferguson got in there with a little assist against the team that, that tried to, uh, to sign him at the same time Brighton were there. Um, they've dropped 26 points in the league this season, four more than across the entire campaign last year. That'll tell you how, how big this slide is. Like A lot of the pundits are kind of saying, is this Liverpool tired from all the battles in recent years with Man City? There's potentially an argument in that. Um, they, they gave it all last year. You felt like you know they were challenging on four fronts, won the two cups, and then just petered out. And then this season, it's just it's hard to see where their motivation lies because you look at the likes of Virgil Van Dijk. Now, there's justification to the argument of the injury. So they have Van Dijk out, Diaz out, Jota, several others. That's had an impact, especially at the weekend there. You'd imagine, but it's just individual mistakes, isn't it? Well. I don't know if it, I, 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 that individual mistakes thing is always shorthand for I haven't a clue what's going on. When the, I'm not saying you, but with the, the managers, yeah, are like, sure. It, it's a Frank Lampard trope back in the day. Whenever things are going awry at Chelsea, it was always individual mistakes, and then Tuchel came in and the individual mistakes stopped. So I, look, I, I mean, I think the problems at Liverpool are befuddling at mm. this point when you consider that. Well, we thought it was maybe you know. Uh, the absence of Sadio Mane bringing that energy to the front line and then it was like all the midfielders all collectively uh, failing at the same time and then it's like well the centre-backs don't seem to be as good as they used to be and that's a general malaise all over the throughout the team mm. the injury profile definitely not helping but uh, I, I can't remember as precipitous a collapse from a team who were the best in Europe to now also runs in the race for fourth they're not all surrounds in the race for the Premier League title. Like, can anybody, uh, like, make a case for them to finish in the top four this season? At this point? Not really. It's gone, isn't it? They're ten points off United, who are fourth. Uh, the same amount of games played. Look, that's catchable, because there's still another game to go for before we reach the halfway point. If United had been beaten at the weekend, right? Yeah. You could have made a case. But now that United are winning, mm. in the way that they're winning, with the confidence that they have... I don't think you can make a case to finish in the top four, yeah. which leaves you know the massive, massive Champions League game as like the whole season riding on it. Like you look at the Brentford game two weeks ago when they lost three one. You look at the Wolves game in the FA Cup, Brighton. which they blew away. Brighton, Sorry, like Brighton just obviously happened. Yeah, but like there's 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 so many of these games. Sorry, my my microphone's shaking there, but it's it's just nervous because there's so much happening. Um, the the opener, like Alexis McAllister was involved, intercept Matip's pass, and you're thinking Matip, that is shocking. Um, so there's, there's been moments in Liverpool games now where you're like this team just is is so disjointed I'm just looking at the formation so they had 4-3-1-2 on Saturday Oxlade-Chamberlain behind the front two of Salah and Gakpo but they just weren't at the races they were imbalanced they were poor Jordan Henderson as well was fairly blunt similar to Klopp he was like what went wrong? he was asked what went wrong and he said everything it hasn't been right for a little while now I'll take responsibility we're pretty low on confidence the energy level is low I mean that that's pretty damning your captain's coming out and saying we're low on confidence and the energy in the team is low. Which, why is Liverpool, Liverpool any? Why is their energy any lower than any other team? I mean, they all had the World Cup to contend with. Alexis McAllister was one of Brighton's best players of the weekend, and he went all the way in the World Cup. So, I mean, energy is just an excuse, isn't it? Uh, shout out to Solly Marsh's finish for his second goal. For sure, that was amazing. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, are we sleeping on that? Shout out to Roberto De Zerbi for getting the most of the Solly Marsh. He didn't score at all last season. Roberto deserves well, four now, like yeah. four already. You know, seriously, like March on those kind of like handy enough players for Cardiff, 
back doesn't, in the day and it was like oh he was an okay signing for Brighton doesn't but know our league he's turned oh I love that I love when he sticks <laughs> it to him do you know who originally got that Marco Silva when he first came to England as well when he was Hall manager one. yeah well one of, the, one, of, one of the big ones on uh, a certain show castigated the appointment of this unknown Portuguese man who's mm. now absolutely flying out at Fulham and uh, it's great to see with Zerbi too and obviously he's very good to our own boy up front too and um, just watching the highlights back even on um, was a match of the day Jonathan Pierce, I think did the Brighton Liverpool game and he was saying you know, quite objectively Evan Ferguson Evan Ferguson's making a serious difference is, to this Brighton side Is Jonathan Pierce doing that game after the match? He is isn't he? It sounds like it Well I think all of this match of the day stuff is like it's fantastically it's well yeah. written in hindsight Too well written like, almost we are, unless you have incredible foresight as a commentator why would you do it during the game it doesn't make any sense you just do the you well if you have the time but that game was that was a 3 o'clock game wasn't it so you yeah, could have so had time, no, yeah, it's, obviously, time. it's obviously post-match um, it's, it's, it's all it's very knowing yeah my favourite Jonathan Pierce was, was Robot Wars remember that show I do yeah I, yeah. I knew that would be your favourite yeah yeah. I used to enjoy the Robot Wars always comes across as so angry <laughs> so uh, so disgruntled about modern football Jonathan Pierce. Well, also he fa- famously commented on the Eric Cantona Kung Fu kick wasn't he I care not a jot of his talent Yeah, he should never play again it's not a disgrace now Ferguson has two assists right in the Premier League and both quite handy assists because he just passed the ball to someone who ended up in doing fairness. something unbelievable. All but it all counts in the stats. All and it's great, great to well. see. But uh, yeah, the Zerbi's doing a great job. And for Klopp, like you mentioned the stats there, Shane. Like there's so much you can say. Like you know, they haven't kept a clean sheet in the last eight games. But also, I think the biggest takeaway altogether is Klopp saying this is the worst game ever in his managerial career ever. Um, yeah. And remember, two years ago we were all like, he's going to leave. He's going to go. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't seem like he's up for it. Then last season they were brilliant, and now it's back to that conversation again. But he wants. I think he wants to stay. He wants to see his contract out. Is this, like is what happens? What happens after Klopp? That's the thing. Is it a rebuilding? Like a lot of people are saying that this is a rebuilding phase for Liverpool that that is about to happen. I don't know. Is is it that bad that they have to now start from scratch, start from zero? And well, it's not I don't scratch. Know. They still obviously have Mo Salah. I mean, unless they decide to cash in on Salah at this point, because like. Salah looks a bit sad without Manny. He looks a bit sad without his creative tension partner. It's like uh, I kind of miss the yin and yang. I miss the Liam and Noel. Do you know, he kind of he, like, he gets on probably too well with Darwin. You must uh, have a, a theory on Liam and Noel getting back together now that Well, Noel's... I mean, I woke up to that news on Saturday morning. It was very sad. Is it happening? Well... No, no, no. The, the personal news of Noel Gallagher. Very sad. All oh, right. Yeah. His, his marriage... His marriage is ending over. after 11 years. And they were oh, going out right. for 22 years. But now I was thinking, well, I was, uh, I was talking to a fellow who said, well, like, you know, if he needs the money now for whatever legal, oh, legalities money. are coming up. I didn't up, even think of the money. Oh, yeah, he's going to be like, let's do it, yeah. Because oh, this, and apparently that's why the rumours are circling the last few months that he's far more open than he used to be. He was on that pub talk uh, with um, uh, Ray Parler and um, uh, yeah, the other lad. And when, um, when Ray Parler was doing his Corona yeah. and shot for the Queen, yeah, that yes, word? yes. <laughs> and anyway, he was on this and all, and then he was kind of very, he was kind of open to the, the reunion, oh, which he never was previously. And it all goes so because he was possibly going to actually divorce. I know. Yes. Oh, right, okay. But yeah. they're going to sell all their music in the way Bob Dylan did, right? Because they've got they've reached that point where they can sell it for. He wants it for his kids. Yeah, he said yeah. he's happy to do that. So it's, it's all it's all adding up. So okay, that could sorry, happen. We, yeah, we, that was uh, very bad a slight yeah. tangent. Bad we for yeah. Her, yeah, with with City and Merseyside. Uh, when we move on to Everton, somebody has finally corrected the uh, the title there and, and moved it to Miseryside. There, hey. uh, we should mention Everton while we're on Miseryside. Uh, very briefly, um, James Ward-Prowse, shocker, scoring a stunning free kick. Two goals for him in the second half. Uh, Southampton we said it when they beat, not, we beat Man City in the Cup is this the start of it sorry it was the League Cup is this the start of the Southampton turnaround and well I mean it was a quality, quality win for them at the weekend and uh, a season of frustration for Frank Lampard and Everton continuing uh, enough concern at the club the safety of the board wasn't um, given the green light so they didn't, didn't show up to the game 
so uh, they were afraid of their own uh, safety. Uh, the fans were quite amenable to the to the Everton players at the end of the game, regardless of the result. Um, you remember nine months ago when Everton avoided relegation with that win over Palace, and it's just party, party all around at uh, Goodison Park. And uh, now you're looking, start of January 2023, things just aren't good. Um, I mean, Lampard got the dreaded vote of confidence last week from Farhad Bashiri. How long will that last? I don't know. But um, if results keep continuing, and if you look at the bottom of the Premier League now, the three teams on the same number of points at the bottom, 15 points, Southampton at the bottom, Everton second bottom, and West Ham in 18th position. So uh, three teams that uh, I don't think anyone would have predicted at the start of the year. To see Yerry Mina confronting the Everton fans afterwards. Um, he was he was quite happy to talk to them. They were quite happy to talk to him, Classic and it, it, was, it was getting quite passionate. And he seemed to keep his cool. Um, but it's um, I'm still I'm kind of surprised that Frank Lambert's still in a job. I really am. But maybe the distraction is actually the board directors being told to stay away. That Lampard might be one of the the lesser problems at the club at the moment, mm. and that's the fans seem to be um, certainly aiming their ire towards the the upstairs parties rather than the man in the dugout who I think they I think a lot of Everton fans like I remember us talking about him when he took over first and I think one of their first games was away to Newcastle which they lost and they were very supportive of him on social media very supportive of him there was somebody else who was going to get the job and they were like no no we want Lampard it was the um, yeah I know who you're yeah I think it was Garcia wasn't it and um, he interviewed for it and then he came out bizarrely before the decision was made saying I think I can do great things with this club. And then 24 hours later, Lampard was appointed, which was a bit of a shock at the time. But the Everton fans, certainly online, were very supportive of the They man. were. They were. If, um, if say, a Roberto De Zerbi figure had been up against Frank Lampard, would the Everton fans in their wisdom have gone for Lampard? Mm. I mean, how do we know the other guy wasn't a, a De Zerbi in waiting? Possibly. Possibly. I mean, he definitely deserved it. The, uh, the top three uh, odds now in this, the, um, yeah, of course, the, uh, the, the next Everton manager, next permanent Everton manager, the odds... So third place, this has changed over the last number of days. Roberto Martinez seven to two. Wayne Rooney, second favourite, three to one. And the favourite at two to one is Sean Deitch. So I mean Deitchy is the favourite to take over Everton if uh, if Lam- if and when Lampard gets the sack. If the results continue, you'd imagine, as you say, Colin, it could be fairly soon that Frank Lampard finds himself out of a job. He'll get another one. That's the way football works. I'm not sure. Will he? There's not that He's many. He's already had three. There's not that He's many flying through him. He is flying through. No, he he'll get something. He'll get something. But um, I'm starting to wonder, like, yeah, like, is he that? Is he that bad? Or is this Everton side just not good enough? I like. I actually thought he signed okay. Like his two centre halves are very good for that level. Tarkovsky and Cody. So that was like a pretty smart what acquisition. Level? Premier League level for that level of the Premier League. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a smart acquisition. Like Jordan Pickford's a good keeper. Like Patterson's a good right back. Then you have Coleman as well, and that mm-hmm. side. Like they have a few handy enough players, but then you, the further you go up the field, it's just like it's just not a very threatening final third squad. Yeah, and uh, I would be fascinated to know how, say, a, a tactically evolved coach, how more much more they would be getting out of this Everton side. But with Lampard, he's like he kind of seems to stop turning on his players as much as he used to. Remember last season, he's constantly throwing them under the bus. Yeah. And I think he realizes now that uh, oh, maybe they're not so bad. He's stuck with them. Maybe they're not so bad. It was Vitor Pereira. Who was going to be the manager that they were going to appoint? Um, Sliding doors. He's at Flamengo at the moment. That's the way it happens. Just um, just appointed. He was at Corinthians before that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Like, look, uh, Everton. Uh, who's going to give us? Who's going down now? Oh, uh, I think Southampton will go down. Um, I think Bournemouth will go down, and I think potentially. Whisper it, Leeds United. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the Leeds fans I know are, are um, they say they feel like there's no hope. Mm. It's just avoiding relegation at this stage. 
They're on edge. Uh, do you remember I got ridiculed from Edge and Palace about five, six weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's ridiculous, Eddie Thomas. So they're 12. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? I did, yeah. I said, everybody from Palace down is in trouble. They're seven points Any, any of one of them could sink like a stone. Mm. And since then, Palace is sinking. It's just that the teams around them aren't great. Mm. They have United at home on uh, Wednesday night, Palace, so that's a... Also, you know who we haven't really talked about at all much this season is David Moyes at West Ham. Like This is kind of falling massively flat, like yeah. really, really flat. And same with Brendan Rodgers at Leicester. Yeah. I like, mean, we could have any number of people in the red this weekend oh, from the Premier League. It's a brilliant relegation battle. All the way from Palace down to Southampton. So you'd say, you think your lot are okay in the 11th, Aston Villa 11th? Definitely Villa are fine. Not Villa are looking up instead of down. Mm. Um, they're only three points ahead of Palace with uh, one more game played, Jer. So I mean, they're yeah, but their form is four yeah. wins and six. True, fair. And the new managers come in who's a grown up. Fair, yeah, yeah. Getting good stuff out of the players, like Emery. Um, move on. Yeah, just before we do, I'm going to get to some of the YouTube comments. They were they were active and ready. They were waiting for us this morning. Mm-hmm. John Hoare, before we even started the show. Hey lads, Casemiro, best defensive midfielder in the league. Pogba out, Casemiro in is the biggest change in Man United performance. It's not. It's not the biggest change in Man United's performance. Having a manager who knows what the fuck he's doing is the single biggest change at Manchester United. We all know it, and you can't... That's the starting point for everything. and it's the start, It should be the starting point now for every single club. It's like, does our manager know what he's doing? Yes or no? If yes, proceed. If no, get rid. And keep going until you find somebody. And so Everton should just get rid of Lampard. Like, they should just get rid of Lampard and say, right, that's done, we need to find somebody. And maybe then it'd be safe for the board to go to the games. I, I don't have any children, um, you know. I know you, you do, Jer, but uh, and Colm, you don't just yet. But I, I think if I had a child tomorrow that you know of, that I know of, yeah, yeah. If I had a child tomorrow that I was told about, I, I think I'd call them Casemiro. <laughs> I think it, they'd be Casemiro Hannon. It has a ring to it, you know. Casemiro Cristiano Fitz- Fitzgerald. I was going to say Casemiro, Casemiro Fitzgerald. Hannon. <laughs> yeah, Maybe, yeah. Casemiro Fitzgerald. <laughs> Fitz- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fergus Keogh says has Klopp reached a sell-by date and David Tomney goes Klopp's seven-year itch history has shown it lads the seven-year itch Marilyn Monroe moves in upstairs in the movie that's what happens right and at the end he goes back to his family so the seven-year itch is just like a little passing fancy it's not a real thing and it's also who, eight years who is Jurgen Klopp's where's, where's Marilyn Monroe Marilyn, in this yeah. it doesn't work it doesn't work Cody Gakpo maybe is Marilyn Monroe maybe one of the all-time we'll great time. movies by the way if you haven't watched it it's Sensational. Perfect. Really? Yeah. That's just because Marilyn Monroe's in it. No, no, the writing is sensational. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I saw The Apartment recently. That's a great film. Jack Lemon. Oh. Oh my God. Love Jack Lemon. It's brilliant. Jack Honestly. L- who's the... Uh, the lead... The Mia Farrow. No. no uh, Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine. Oh yeah. Have her autograph at home. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. It's very good now. Jack Lemon and, and Walter Matthau, the great double act, unfortunately died before I could, could, could write to them. Mm. I, was, I was actually cursing a lot of old celebrities when I was younger. I used to write letters to celebrities, and they'd send back an autograph, and within two weeks they'd be dead. Oh, you, you, uh, so you were literally cursing them, as literally to killing them, giving out about them. Yeah, right. yeah. Mom would be like, "There's a there's a letter in the post for you there." I'd, I'd open it, and it was an actor who had already died two weeks previous, but it had taken three weeks for it to arrive. Wow! And I was like, "This is weird." Do you remember the name? Uh, there was a few. There was a few of those instances. Was there? He's like sending little white powder to them. Was, I was. I remember being in, in, t- in touch with a baseball player for the Detroit Tigers. This pitcher, I think, Mark Fidrick was his name. And uh, he sent me a letter, signed a couple of baseball cards and baseball for me. I don't know, I went through a period of supporting the Detroit Tigers in the Major League. And uh, he sent me two baseball, baseball cards back and, yeah, killed in a farm accident on his tractor, literally as the, uh, the cards were en route to me. Oh, he was wow. Only, like in his 50s. So it was right. like, 
there was incidents like that happening. I was, I'm not saying I cursed them, but um, immediately increasing the value of the baseball cards. 100%. is what you were thinking. Well, yeah, that's the the dark way of looking at it. Jesus. He died April thirteenth, two thousand nine. Mark Federick. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Remember it well? I remember it. You would have been late teens. What age was he? He was in his fifties, I think. Fifty four. Fifty four. Mm. Madness. Six with thirty. You. <laughs> yeah, well, that sort of thing sticks with you. Anyway, sorry, that's a tangent. How did we get there? Uh, Klopp, seven year. Oh, sorry. Ah, uh, uh, here, leaving for another few seasons as Mark C. The Man United fans feel themselves. They're loving this Liverpool story. It's not just the Man United are good, it's the Liverpool are terrible. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, excellent win for Arsenal yesterday, says Mark Dunning. Completely outplayed them in the first half. Biggest difference was probably the performance of the two keepers. Ramsdale looked so assured. Lloris looked well dodgy. Mm. We're going to get to that, don't worry. We will. We'll move on to the, uh, the next element of red. The. Uh, the next colour up and uh, City and Spurs. Uh, again, we'll start in, in maybe order of, of when this game happened. Uh, Man City and the players not too happy at United's equaliser. Bruno Fernandes' goal and the offside that wasn't. Um, Manuel Akanji, Kyle Walker, Jack Grealish. Um, kind of get coming around Stuart Atwell in the tunnel apparently after the match. Harry Maguire coming out of the United dressing room to appease matters. Scott McTominay getting involved as well as McTominay tends to do. Uh, they just weren't I missed happy. all this. What happened? Apparently it was just that they were, it wasn't a fracas, it was kind of the, the City players, uh, with those three I named uh, to the four, surrounding Stuart Atwell and his officials, uh, Alan K- or, um, Darren Can, of course, the, the linesman over on that far side that allowed the goal to stand. Um, so they just surrounded him, complained about the goal, wouldn't drop it, and then the United players got involved to kind of calm them down and, and help them uh, move away. But uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly the Battle of Old Trafford and the Battle of the Buffet, but still, City not happy. Um, in the moment, I was like, yeah, great decision by the officials, letting that goal stand. Uh, Rashford has not touched the ball. He was not involved in the play. Uh, but then in hindsight, I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah, probably if, if that goal had been against United, United fans would have been pretty upset. So um, it was one of those moments you can kind of understand from City's perspective. Pep Guardiola on the sideline remonstrated and then straight away tried to get the City players back in back in focus, but it didn't work. United went on to, to of course, score the winning goal and the rest is history. Is this not all a distraction from what's actually going on at Manchester City, all this noise from the match of the weekend? Because uh, this game, again, they were very poor in attack. They only had two shots. Yeah. One of them was the goal. They were very poor and um, it's a match today again that did very good analysis of what's wrong with them in attack and Ian Wright was pointing out Erling Haaland is doing everything right on his side but the City players just aren't servicing him. So, he w- he makes brilliant vertical runs essentially that the City players just refuse to He's put too him through. Good for them. And, um, they're playing a lot of sideways and kind of diagonal passes where Haaland's kind of throwing his hands up in the air like Robbie Keane style back in the day yeah. where he's now gone offside so they have to regenerate the ball. But like Ian Wright pointed out maybe a handful of occasions where Haaland was through one-on-one if the ball was played at the right time with the right yeah. accuracy and it just wasn't. And they seemed a bit... Like, you've never really said much about Manchester City sides under Pep Guardiola that kind of lacked ideas a bit. They did. And uh, when they went one up, I don't know about you, Shane, but it wasn't any great big fear based on how they were playing. I thought, okay, they might come into it, they might st- like step on now a bit, but I really actually backed United to get back into the game. It's almost what United needed, the City goal. And then w- when they got one, you were thinking, well, the momentum is with them now. They're going to get a second. I, I actually noticed, uh, maybe it's, um, uh, it's confirmation bias, but I thought in the tunnel before the match, Haaland looked, I'm not going to use the word nervous, but he certainly looked like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. This was the game where, of course, he... Uh, it meant the most to him probably with the whole story about his dad and I'm sure it's all floating through his head when he hears the Stone Roses come on and this is the one and they're walking out and he's like, well, okay, I'm in Old Trafford now, I'm playing for City, this is Manchester Derby. Um, I felt like he looked more nervous than he normally does before a match. Mm. Look, he didn't have the the worst game at all. Um, United kind of stifled him. 
I thought putting Luke Shaw centre half to kind of match him for pace worked. Fred had De Bruyne in his pocket for the first certainly 30, 35 minutes at least. Um, now De Bruyne eventually gets the assist course for City's goal but the first while Fred is just a shadow of De Bruyne and he's given him nothing. Yeah. Uh, and look Fred does that job very well. Follows, you know, he follows his man around does a job like I don't know like Parchi Sung or someone to that effect. But really really good performance from uh, from United but City I don't think you'd be too concerned about City. Uh, look, so that losing to Southampton during the week was a was a warning sign. Losing to United in the manner in which they did was was pretty poor as well. But you'd still imagine they'll be back. And Antonio Conte after the ma- the match yesterday saying it's a two horse race for the title. Yeah. Lately dismissing United at Newcastle. Um, you know what, you know, Alan? You picked up on something there. I think when he cares too much, uh, his performances suffer. Ben Godfrey, remember the Everton game there a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, finished yeah. one all. Godfrey's winding him up the whole game and then Haaland finally got a free kick and started like wildly gesticulating into the crowd come on come on and he was kind of quiet we after that and I think yeah but I th- this is his first time playing at Old Trafford as well I think it would have been yeah certainly um, as a city so player. yeah I mean uh, he, he probably thought this was going to be the day and he probably had a celebration planned and was thinking too far ahead but the best Haaland is the objective one the cold one yeah. who just kills people but um, he didn't look cold to me before the game he looked, he looked nervous now I'll tell you what though that's Bruno Fernandes goal Grateful, but just never stood. I mean, great finish, great you, finish. You, you can't let that goal happen. I don't understand I'm, the rules anymore. You just can't. It's, um, I mean, he one hundred percent interfered to play. Yeah. Well, uh, like one hundred percent. There's there's been this mad controversy in American football ever since Des Bryant last week, five six years ago, made a catch at the end of the game, which would have won the game for the Dallas Cowboys, and was oh it's a catch, and then they they went upstairs and the VAR basically equivalent was like, oh no, that's not a catch because it wasn't a football movement. And since then, I remember listening to somebody going, uh, if 100 people are in a pub watching the game and they think that's offside, it's offside, right? Because that's like, everybody should be able to understand the rules. The joy of football used to be that it was so easy that everybody watching could go, yeah, I understand exactly what's happening here. And that's gone because like, you know, I mean, technically, apparently... By the letter of the law, it's all yeah. perfectly fine. Like, but it shouldn't be. And but these uh, these rules were altered for the right reasons, right? It was to improve the game that they thought. Well, look, there's there's a bit of injustice here with the offside, so we're going to try and benefit some party. But the traditional rule was you benefit the attacking play, and it was. I I don't remember offside being such a huge debate. 10, 20 years ago, no. I just don't remember it being a big deal. I, I, the same way that um, players are absolutely obsessed with handball now. If there's any any idea at all of a handball in the penalty area, everyone goes mental, and I don't remember that being the case well, a long they time ago. That rule too, and then they've changed it back again. Yeah, yeah. so there's almost um, a priority given to set piece winning rather than playing football, and that is because mm. of the rules. But uh, the idea was right in the first place, but the the execution of it we gotta, we is, gotta, it's frustrating. We got to keep going. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back going. to this. Right, we'll, uh, we'll, look, we'll mention Spurs briefly. Hugo Lloris is shout, and um, I think there's not much else to be said. He palmed the ball into his own goal, and, and Spurs did a Spurs. If Bob Dwyer is watching this morning, you can let us know what you, what you made of that. But uh, really, I mean, it was about Arsenal's performance for the, for the majority of the, the early part of the game. Lloris was just crap. Uh, and and to, uh, to point it in complete direction of the other way, it, uh, Aaron Ramsdale had a brilliant game for Arsenal. So it was a tale of two keepers. First win at Spurs for Arsenal since 2014, but we'll come back to them in the green. Uh, junior final in the Galads in the Amber this, uh, this morning. I mean, Fuster's performance deserves to be in the green, but then... The, uh, the discipline and the disciplinary breaches on both sides probably are the reason why we've put this final, generally speaking, in amber. It was a bit shocking to watch towards the end. So 19 points to Fossa, 113 to Stewartstown Harps, the Tyrone team, as you mentioned, the Kerry Tyrone battle. 
Stewartstown finished the game with 11 men. Four players sent off, three of them on straight red cards in the second half. Uh, two fellas sent off, two Cliffords, in fact, for, uh, for Fossa. Um, it was just one of those strange, bizarre games, especially towards the tail end. It's still in the melting pot, so you're wondering why Stewartstown are, are doing this. But um, the really sickening moment was, uh, a lot of people will have seen it now, but if you didn't see it live, you'll have seen it on Twitter. Anton Coyle, um, with a sickening hit on Paddy Clifford, uh, Paddy Fitzgerald, as the, uh, Larry McCarthy was calling him in the, the post-match, handing the trophy over to him, but it is Paddy Clifford. Um, that elbow in the face, and the worst thing about this is that this is on, this is on television. It's in front of a stadium full of people, um, and you're still doing something like that. Anton Coyle should be, should be banned for, for a significant period of time. Um, it, it's something you see quite often, and look, I know when, when Tyrone and Kerry clubs come together, there's an extra element, element of spice. There's a little bit of hatred there as well. Um, but there's no place in the game for that. Um, and look, a lot of the red cards you could you could say was it a red card? Was it not? Paddy Clifford in his speech afterwards. I think we might have a clip of that, do we? Of yeah, Paddy Clifford's speech. Here's a, here's a look at what Paddy Clifford had to say after the match. To, to the referee and to his officials, um, obviously a very a tough game there to ref at the end. Um, a good good job other than the end when I, when I was probably said that. And that's unbelievable how I was enough. A great job all round, yeah. Apart from the bit where they sent me off. But, uh, I have I, a dream. That's up there with I have a dream speech, <laughs> isn't it? That's one of the great speeches of our times. <laughs> Jesus. What was the Churchill one as well? Yeah. yeah. It's the incredulity in his voice, isn't it? Yeah. Ah. That fact that he goes back again and says it. He's totally like, just, I, just, I just can't believe I was sent um, off. It, it's total no, verbalisation of his thoughts. You can't celebrate this because uh, you're, you're condoning attacks on referees, according to my Twitter feed. It was like, I was like, it was just funny because think of the children think of the children it's like fair play the um, whoever is the match director I think it's Nemeton doing those games right but uh, they were straight over to the referee with the footage it was like and they weren't cutting away from it and they were also like I don't know if you you saw the aftermath like the Stewartstown players and management team are are still in with the fuss of players complaining after the game there was none of the like incredible interviews I thought from um, David Clifford in particular where he's like there's so much riding on this that's all that is that's all I, mm, I don't bear any grudges to them whatsoever we're going to play a clip of that in a minute um, like he straight away is, is understanding exactly what's going on and, and why it's like that but at full time many of the Stewartstown players and uh, backroom team were still in lippy and like chippily giving crap to fuss it. bad losers really really bad losers in that instance and I mean I don't know it, it just seems to be seems it's in the water Jer go on say it why, why always Tyrone yeah what is it about what is it about Tyrone football culture that results in this there's something like people from Coal Island up in Tyrone call it the island um, but there's, some, there's something island-esque about the entire county of Tyrone now as a modern man I can, I can say this we're, we're border counties my granny is from Tyrone uh, I live ten minutes from the border with Tyrone. Um, and would you go and like just play friendlies with them, or are you like no, because we 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 don't we don't want to be beaten black and blue. <laughs> they're often they're we often don't, we don't want our girlfriend's numbers written on the. the... <laughs> yeah, and sometimes there aren't many friendlies considering the geographic proximity. You know, you might choose teams from Fermanagh or from Armagh for an easier life. Uh, I mean that disciplinar disciplinarily speaking, but I mean it was one of those things yesterday where you're like, look. Tyrone's edge and their bite and their little bit of aggressiveness is what has probably brought them so much success through the noughties, even up to now, the All-Ireland a couple of years ago. 
Um, but there's also elements of this in the club game that's fairly disgusting in Tyrone. Let's be honest. The thing is, right, it's not the bike that won them the All-Irelands. It's the quality of the football that they played. Yeah. And the bikes. Like, the bite is the bit where... Um, Siege mentality, they, though, maybe, I'm, I'm saying. But, but uh, no, this is completely over the... This is, they completely lost the run of themselves in that game. And how many times have you seen it? You saw it last year in the Championship. It, when the game was going against them, it was like, oh, red cards all round. Cause there's, there's, against Armagh in the, in the league. That's just a bad or, culture. Yeah. Like, that's, there's something... The bit that makes you a great footballer is not the bit that makes you a thug. In, and I'm not singling out any of the individual things yesterday, right? But there's an element of tuggery involved in like completely losing the run of yourself and then getting into these brawls. But like, it's, it's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault as well. The victimhood that we see constantly is like, oh, they started it. Like, it's funny how it's all, oh, there's just this strain of consistency that, uh, that seems to be Tyrone. And like, here's the thing. Some of the best football performances we've seen in the last 20 years have been from Tyrone Gaelic football teams when yeah. they're just playing football like they did against Kerry in the noughties. That team was sensational. They were absolutely gifted. Now, they might say that it was the the forge of club football that turned them into a team who were capable of doing what they did to uh, Armagh and to, to Kerry. I don't know. But like this stuff is nonsensical and it's completely self-defeating. They were still in the game. They'd handled Clifford relatively well, even though he kicks 11 points. You're like, you'd, 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 any team going out will go, 11 points, that's about... If we can keep everybody else quiet, that's about, we might be able to win this game. And they managed that, except in the last 10 minutes where they completely lost their discipline and then they couldn't take it at the end. Mm. Like, they lost their discipline, they got all the red cards and then they're the ones chippy at the end. Come on, what are you doing? Was it Hamlet? Something is rotten in the state of Tyrone? Um, I don't know. There's there's just... And look, I I, I like Tyrone. Uh, I just said it. My granny's from Bala. I'm always not in a cloy. I love Tyrone. Yeah. I thought they were the team of the noughties. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you just, doing? They make it hard to love them when there are moments like this. And look, Stuart's time players probably, a lot of them will wake up today and go, yeah, okay, it, 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 that was a bit much. Maybe if we kept our discipline, we could have won the game. I don't think they will. No? I don't think they will. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear Maybe them. not from a moral perspective, but from a, we could have won the game if we'd all stayed uh, yeah, in the pitch perspective. Yeah, but, yeah, well, I mean, but like, I don't know. I don't, t- Tyrone, lads, come on. Let's be having you. What, is, what is the story? Yeah. Why does this happen to you so often? Bit concerning, isn't it? Um, but yeah, that was the that was the disgraceful part of the game, and, and then Clifford I mean, Clifford's season: twenty goals in one hundred and eighty-seven games from thirty-four uh, one hundred and eighty-seven points from thirty-four games with County Club, District, and College in the twenty twenty-two to th- twenty-three season. He's ridiculous. But also zero zero sense of getting carried away with it, like just um, just like so calm in the aftermath. It was in, it was incredible yeah. how calm he was in the interviews that he did with TJ Carr and he did with Ashling, and uh, you know, like Paddy not calm. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 for sure. I still, I still can't believe it. Neither it's of like, them will play a minute of the league, will they? And the right smile of uh, definitely Clifford was like, "Oh, we'll be off for a couple of weeks, three or four Was yeah, <laughs> what he said in the interview with Ashley. It was like, "I'll be off for a couple of weeks," and then he was like, "No, actually, no, I'm going to have three or four weeks off now." He missed the Kerry holiday. The, the he did, yeah. Both yeah. of them was they, worth it. Wasn't they this? played him in the pre-tournament, pre-season tournament last year. Remember that? Oh, madness. Um, I'd be surprised to see him in in the league at any point. Maybe towards the tail end of the last couple of games, he might appear, but. He deserves a break. If any 11 scores from 12 attempts as well. Ah, here. He was pretty good. Almost, almost. passed at the end though for a goal. <laughs> but yeah. Almost another run. highlight reel where the keeper comes out and gets caught in possession. And it, 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 like, he reminded me at times yesterday of Pelé. There's the, there's the, the Pelé miss. Mm. Pelé was always like trying to score the great goal. There's the one the where... The dummy. Yeah. yeah. 
um, and hit, it just goes over the crossbar and that would have been another uh, like for him at this stage for anything to make the highlight reel it has to be out of this world because he's got so many of them that was one and then there was another bit where he reminded me of the real Ronaldo in his um, you know, the early Barca or the PSV days where there's lads pulling his jersey Barca, Barcelona yeah the back of him. Bobby Robson manager in the sideline it's yeah. literally exactly the same thing happening yeah. yesterday where they were pulling his jersey and the referee's like advantage because I think you're going to score yeah, and then he does score half. and it's like yeah no problem not to be too hyperbolic but is he the best ever for you I mean it's definitely too early to tell is it I don't know is it because he's look at his last 12 months I mean he, he couldn't you, have done more you would say that like already he's in the conversation yeah. and it's now just a matter of making sure that like the he's four all stars already puts him in that conversation mm. you know he's clearly on a trajectory that has taken him past anybody else we've ever seen if, his, if his career ended tomorrow where would he sit well, it'd be like James Dean if his career ended tomorrow. There'd be a sense of enormous loss mm. for mm. us as sports fans about what we would miss. So I've, I'm wishing him all the best and uh, enjoy the break on the beach wherever it takes you. David Clifford, and we're really excited about what's coming next. Well deserved. Do we have another clip or do you want to just move on? To no, no, go ahead. Move on. Uh, someone comments, Jeppe Wright, uh, Diego, Diego Simeone should manage Tyrone. Diego no. Simeone wouldn't have a patch. <laughs> He'd be going up there to learn. He'd yeah. be on one of those, like, when he quits... Atletico, you know the way uh, um, everybody goes around the world, they all go and visit the All Blacks and what does this no decade drill mean? Diego Simeone would be straight into club football in Tyrone going, what can I learn, lads? Yeah. Show me, how do you get away with this stuff? Well, we were talking about tackling, tackling school for Owen Farrell. Shithousery school <laughs> is in the Tyrone GA Centre. They should open that up. That's where the lessons are. Yeah. 20, so, yeah. 20 grand an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Maliki O'Rourke should manage Tyrone. Concentrate in the football, lads. Let's win something again. Although they did win the All-Ireland a couple of years ago and, and they look fairly dangerous this year, Toronto have to say. In the McKenna Cup final, the competition that they love. Uh, we'll move on to the green, lads. We'll get back to, to Clifford, no doubt, during the sports pages a bit later on. Uh, Munster, and we'll of course touch on this with, uh, with Alan Quinlan this morning as well, but uh, Munster's performance the weekend, second half surge by Northampton Saints to, to almost come back in this Heineken Champions Cup Pool B game. Um, 27 points to 23 for anyone who's in Thoman Park, let us know uh, on Saturday night. First half red card for Jack O'Donoghue, you're thinking this is going to be a tough, tough evening for Munster. Um, but they now lie fourth so all the drama and the, the fear and the loathing that happened towards the start of the, the, the season and, and before Christmas there um, I mean it's all, it's all okay now in the state of Munster 24 points up at the interval thanks to those uh, brace of tries from Gavin Coombs solo score from Donahue uh, before he was sent off uh, and that sending off really led to Northampton Saints comeback in the second half uh, James Ram and Tommy Freeman scoring for Northampton after the break not the great Tommy Freeman of course but the other Tommy Freeman from Northampton um, and Finn Smith adding 13 points from the boot as well uh, they just couldn't quite get the comeback going Northampton but um, really good performance and you're looking at the age profile of some of the this, the Munster team I saw this commented on at the weekend like the likes of Keith Earls Peter O'Mahony Conor Murray Dave Kilcoyne but then there's young players like Coombs like Casey like Daly that are coming through and, and maybe the next generation of Munster players doesn't look so bad uh, and it seems that that South Africa A win back in November was a bit of a turning point everyone yeah. remembers the atmosphere there so yeah. it feels like that was maybe the moment at which Munster pushed on well, I think maybe the moment was getting rid of Johan van Graan and uh, you know accidentally and all as that was and putting Graham Rowntree in because there's no way that Rowntree uh, there's no way that van Graan would have picked the team that Rowntree picked and we'll talk about this with Alan Quillen in a couple of minutes so if you're catching this on podcast make sure you get over to the OTV rugby feed and subscribe to that because um, something has changed you know, specifically in the team selection and we'll deal with that 
you know, no Conor Murray in the matchday squad and no Keith Earls in the matchday squad, as you've said. So yeah. we'll talk about this a little bit later with, uh, with Quinlan. But if you're a Munster fan, we'd like to hear you this morning. Uh, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream at Off the Ball AM on Twitter as well. Yeah, first briefly then finally on the, the two teams that, uh, that deserve the positivity out of the Premier League weekend. Manchester United and Arsenal. We'll start with United, of course, from Saturday afternoon. Um, Casemiro, I mean, enough said, really. Um, United still believed, as you said, Colin. It was even when they went to go down. There was the faith that seemed to be there in the stadium amongst the home fans. And when the, when the equaliser, albeit controversial, went in, uh, United pushing on to win the game wasn't really that surprising. Marcus Rashford, unbelievable of late. His performances have been um, exemplary. His goal scoring is just there and that's what United need, especially when Anthony Martial doesn't look fit. Um, Vlad Veghorst watching the game with his kids in the stand. Um, some smirks in the crowd from him because, that, I mean, that's probably the type of player United need when you look at the game at the, at the weekend. It was just something, there was something missing up front. And now finally they got the, the two goals that they needed. Uh, I said Fred did a, a brilliant job when Kevin De Bruyne, when Alejandro Garnacho came on, he added a bit of liveliness and changed the game as well. Um, but overall, um, excellent performance for United, I think we'll all agree. And uh, I don't know if they're in the title race yet, I don't think they are, but certainly they're making themselves more comfortable in terms of that top four battle. And if they can add a trophy to, the, to their ranks this season, the first since 2017, it will be a successful season. Arsenal then, top of the table, and deservedly so. Uh, Saka causing all sorts of trouble down the right-hand side yesterday in the North London derby. Lloris shoveling the ball into his net probably helped for the opening goal. Thomas Partey almost scoring one of the goals of the season with that strike off oh the Oh my post. God. That was just incredible. He nearly broke the stanchion. Like. It's made an involuntary noise. He <laughs> <hit> that. <laughs> yeah, I think we all squealed. He had that in him. He scored a screamer against Spurs in the reverse fixture. Yeah, he only scored screamers. You're, you're getting grief for not having Newcastle in the green. They're the United you're talking about with you know, oh, United in that was like Mitrovic's well, thank, thank for Mitrovic's Bodevine's uh, ending impression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so his little slip. Uh, but yeah, Newcastle for sure. They're thereabouts, they deserve it. And uh, ugly scenes at full time at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium that we should mention as well. Uh, the Spurs fan kicking Ramsdale in the back and Ramsdale, I was wondering why he was so animated towards the end but when you see the replay that's exactly why. Well, Richarlison as well. Well, yeah, was he, winding he him was up. winding him up. Did Arteta I, did a good job. Did anybody hear no. Richard Keyes on that? No. And Arteta? Oh, terrible take. Did you see this? Yeah, ridiculous. Keyes, Keyes suggesting that Mikel Arteta started it all with his demeanour on the sideline. This is historical thing. A couple thing. of weeks ago. Yeah. No, no, in the, well, yeah, but also in the game he threw the ball away when Kudusevsky was trying to take a quick throw and smirked and after that there was a bit of needle. Sure, Jacques Richard Keyes is suggesting that it, that went all the way to what happened with Ramsdale. Okay, I, I, Look, I, I think that like Richard's a confident man in his own ability. set a tone and there are repercussions for your tone but he did also calm it down. He did get Xhaka out at the end he did get Ramsdale out at the end he did run into the middle of it and like insert himself which he obviously likes you know I I think the fan ruined it perfect scenario for him because there was an act of solidarity between both sets of players once the fan got involved if the fan stayed away it would have been great because it would have been Arsenal versus Spurs all over again Uh, All right. anything else that's all I think United and Arsenal deservedly in the green lads that is this week's version of the Gillette Labs performance rankings OTBAS performance rankings with Gillette we're live every morning in association with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. After the break, we're talking about the Manchester Derby with Daniel Harris. First, here's David Clifford himself speaking with our own Ashley O'Reilly at Croke Park after Fuss's win. It was madness at the end. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? There was six red cards out there. Two for, for Fossa, obviously yourself. You picked up one. Paddy picked up one. What was it in the end, I suppose, for you? Is we're getting a lot of treatment out there. Uh, look, I, don't, I wouldn't say that. Um... Mine was, look, a second yellow, sure, look, I think anyone, anyone in the world would take that fall to try and stop them from going on, 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 a, on a counter-attack there. Um, not sure what it is, no, to be honest, but uh, 
Uh, look, look there, there's just so much emotion involved in the game. Um, it's just desperation. Look, fellas are fellas are, are doing things in the right spirits. So you're going, you're going in maybe to to make a hit to connect on a ball maybe. And, and look, if you mistime it slightly, um, the way fellas are built now, it's probably going to look worse when they're moving at so much speed. So, so they put it down to. And it was four red cards for them. So I suppose in the end, maybe they lost their heads a little bit. You know, as you said, a lot of emotion goes into it. Exactly. Yeah. Look, it's it's, it's difficult. I suppose. Look, if you put yourselves in in, in their shoes. You're up at halftime, um, and you can feel things starting to slip away. If you, you'll do anything to try and turn the tide. So again, like I said, it's probably just—I don't—I don't even know. Whatever, lunging into a tackle or whatever. Look, I suppose it'll, uh, someone didn't watch the game will probably look at it and say, "Geez, that must have been a—that must have been a nasty game." But it wasn't really like that. I think there was good football played. So, yeah. Brilliant football! Like yeah. it was such attacking football. Both teams were defending so well. So exciting to watch. I think anyone that came into Crow Park today, they really got a good entertaining game. Ah, uh, yeah, I suppose you'd hope so. Look, we, we, were, we were very conscious of the fact that they just came down from intermediate. Um, and look, we we're possibly a team that are maybe on the up a small bit, so we knew that there was, it was going to be at a good level. Um, but yeah, just to get over the line is, is, is brilliant, yeah. Yeah, what a year you've had. I know we're in 2023 at the moment, but 2022 for you was pretty much the perfect season, and now it's sort of like a cherry on top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look, I suppose. It's, it's a season like no other, really. Um, but I suppose the main thing it does is it makes you, it makes you hungry to come back and, and have more success because you can see the enjoyment you get after the games, like the crack for the weeks after the games is class, so you're kind of anxious to, to do that again. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It is 15 minutes past eight. Um, there has been a surge in our audience uh, anytime we talk about Manchester United just recently because... There is now irrefutable evidence that they are back. Daniel Harris, good morning to you. Hello, good morning. They are back, aren't they? Uh, back-ish, I would say. Winning derbies is obviously good, and this winning run is excellent, but we have seen something similar to this under Mourinho a little bit and under Ole a little bit, but it does look like there's a little bit more permanence to the way that they're playing now. So United aren't back until they start winning stuff, but it does look like they're on the road. I I think the thing about being back is at least you're competitive for stuff. Incredible. I, I think under Mourinho, the football was just so difficult to enjoy, whereas this is different. He, the, the manager wants him to be creative with the ball. He's he's taking the left back and put him in centre back and all of a sudden the centre back's job is to thrust forward as opposed to being shouted at if he goes over the, the halfway line. And it's, it's, like, it's ironic that it is Luke Shaw who has blossomed into this uh, titanic attacking centre-back. Only, only Eric Ten Hag had the vision for this. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, he is on a roll at the moment, Ten Hag, where almost everything he tries is working. But it comes, I guess, from a solid base because we talked on here quite a lot over the last season. Because I was thinking about this before I came on this morning. There were two things we talked about quite a lot. One was me constantly saying, I promise you these players aren't that bad, and that's why I hate them so much. And I think we're seeing quite a bit of that now, that the players that we've been saying for quite a long time can really really can play football, are playing football. That's some of the players like Luke Shaw, like Marcus Rashford. And the other thing we've constantly been batting about is who should the next manager be? And it really, in this case, came down to a choice between Mauricio Pochettino and Eric Ten Hag. And Pochettino, in some ways, had a stronger CV to get the job but I found myself constantly leaning towards Ten Hag because even though I like Pochettino, I think he had the personality to do the United job. My concern with him was that we'd seen the best of him and also that United needed to recruit someone as manager who was able to compete with Guardiola and Klopp, who were obviously the best guys at the time, 
rather than someone who perhaps had proved himself to be not quite as good as them already. So even though I didn't know enough about Ten Huff to confidently predict that this was the right bloke, it felt like he was a better fit than Pochettino because it felt more like he was the coming man, even though they're similar ages, just their career trajectories have been slightly different. And what we've seen from Ten Huff, more or less, is from when he joined until now, apart from trying to sign Marco Arnautovic, which was very bad behaviour, and what he had previously said about how he'd be happy to work with Mark Overmars again, he has done this job almost perfectly. It took him two games to get going. Uh, but then after that, in those two games, United was so dreadful, he more or less earned himself the political capital to do whatever he wanted with the team. And almost everything he's done since then has gone well. He picked the wrong team against City when United lost 6-3 uh, in the first derby of the season. But it should also be remembered that City were 10 out of 10 that day. This City team may go on to win all sorts of trophies and never play better than they did that day. But Ten Hag still picked the wrong team. But other than that, he's been almost perfect. The turnaround's been pretty quick, Daniel. You remember earlier this season, United were 4-0 down at half-time to City in the league and ended up losing 6-3. Uh, and, and yet, even when they went a goal down on Saturday afternoon, with the Grealish header, you're thinking... This game isn't over. That's a, that's a cultural shift and it's an attitude shift that's brought about by, by Ten Hag, surely, because even when they went to goal down, you just felt that United were still in this game. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. I mean, even under Ole, actually, to give him his due, I mean, United got themselves into trouble all the time and ended up having to chase games, particularly away from home, where they went on that long run of not losing away from home. They were behind in so many games. But the, the, I think what was different was the reason they were behind in all those games was that mentality you talked about. They didn't start games in the proper manner. Whereas what happened against City was they played they played well throughout the game. But if you play a team as good as City, there's going to come a time where City are in the ascendancy. And what happened was when United were in the ascendancy, they didn't score. And when City were in the ascendancy, they did score. And that can happen. That wasn't indicative to me of poor mentality. Whereas when United were constantly coming from behind under Ole... The fact that they were behind in the first place reflected indolence and lack of fibre. And you're right to say that Ten Hag has given them some vertebra. And confidence breeds confidence. And the more they win, the better they play. It's a virtuous circle. And that's what you're seeing from United now. So when they go behind, they know that they don't need to panic because they trust the manager. They trust what they're doing. And I think most importantly of all, it means that they trust themselves. That when, when United beat Liverpool early in the season... And that was the third game of the season after they'd been battered in the first two. Ten Hag gave an interview afterwards. And the thing that he really kept drilling was these players are good. These are good. This is a good team. They just have to have the confidence to believe in themselves. And that's someone like Ten Hag, who's a technocrat. That was what he was kind of known as. He's a bloke who's going to coach the players and get United playing modern football. But even someone like that, who is into when the ball's here, you've got to be there. And that kind of modern, quite choreographed, almost way of playing football to a certain extent. The thing that he knew was most important about these players was mentality because the players are good. It was about their ability to perform under pressure and to perform with consistency, to have that remorselessness that means that every time you get on the pitch, you play with full intensity and full effort. And he's getting that now. I was saying earlier, I think a lot of United fans, including myself, will be, will be considering changing or um, naming their first child after Casemiro, uh, Daniel, with the, the performances that he's been coming out with. Uh, like, I know I mean, Bruno... He, yeah, sorry, I thought you finished. Go on. No, like Bruno Fernandes picks up the man of the match, but Casemiro seems the common denominator in all these United performances. Yeah, uh, Casemiro is the, the key player in this team because he is the thing that has been missing from this team for years. I've been banging on probably for five years now. He, 
that United needed to have this kind of player. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that Ole made, I mean, he was particularly in his signings, his signings weren't great, but it was, it, there was that summer where he spent 85 million quid on Maguire, even if Maguire had been Franco Baresi, I mean, what, what sentence that is, even if Maguire had been Franco Baresi, the more important move was to sign someone for that position because you can hide a good defence if you've got the ball. Uh, City have done doing it for years. I mean, not I'm saying their defence is rubbish, but their defence has always been the weakest part of every Pep Guardiola team and they always managed to hide it by keeping the ball. United been unable to do that, so it meant that they had their no midfield, which meant they were inviting pressure, and that was much harder to hide, the fact that you don't have a midfield. And putting Casemiro in there has given you, number one, it's given you a player in that position. But again, back to the mentality, if you're a United player, if you're whoever, at stock with Tomine, Fred, and you look around and you think, Jesus Christ, there's Casemiro next to me, it fortifies you with a level of confidence because this is a guy that knows what to do. He's a very serious footballer. And also, you don't want him to think that you're an indolent idiot. You want Casemiro to think you're good. And the fillet that that has given the team when, because they'll read the papers as well, and they're seeing that maybe it's going to be Rabiot who's coming in. And then all of a sudden, it's not Rabiot, it's Casemiro, one of the greatest players in the world, who has not just the ability to help control the game of football to always do the right thing at the right time. But you can see he's got that personality. He's got that compelling, enveloping. It's almost like a real, like a football personality, like an old school football personality. So that when United score, he's one of the ones who's in the crowd leading the cheering. He's someone who almost like that header he scored at Chelsea in the last second. It was an amazing header, but he almost personalityed that in. Because someone without that kind of aggressive, confrontational competitive charisma doesn't score that goal and that competitive charisma is one of the things this team was lacking and Casemiro has just given you everything that wasn't there before in terms of technical ability in terms of tactical ability and also in terms of the mentality to be a leader in the team and then when you remember that behind him is Rafael Varane suddenly that looks like a very serious spine of the team of players who not only know how to win but expect to win and that has a massive effect on the players that they play with and also the players that they play against you see these two giants of the game standing there and suddenly it's you know that that is not going to be an easy evening anymore uh the ericsson um grafting him into the team as well like it's a, a perfect storm of players who want the ball at all times who have the technical ability to take it in difficult scenarios and to make sure that you still have it even after you've been pressed. There were there was stages in the first half in particular when um, City were quite dominant in terms of possession and Manchester United would be able to play the ball through the midfield and keep it as opposed to it breaking down because it was Fred and McTominay who were being tasked with uh, controlling the tempo of the game and they, that just wasn't their skill set. The wrong players were doing being asked to do the wrong things. And now you've got the right players generally being asked to do the right things and players who we kind of had written off. Um, you know, you think Arwan Bissaka for a start. But then also, like, the notion that Luke Shaw could be not just a competent centre-back, but somebody who's actually going to have a positive impact on the game in possession. Um, it's transformative. And I think it speaks to the, the wider sense of that... Uh, you use the autocrat to describe Ten Hag someone who has a distinct vision for what everybody is, is supposed to do and is drilling that constantly. That's the key thing here. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that Ten Hag had that really none of the other managers had is competition for places. What you had under Mourinho and under and under Ten Hag is and under Ole is you'd have pick a team and then certain players would play well and Mourinho would keep picking the same players because he wouldn't pick the ones he hated and Ole would swap out the players who played badly, bring in some other ones, then they'd play badly and then you just keep going round and round and round. Whereas what Ten Hag's got is he's got the good players that Ole had and to it he's added some more good players. And so it's now the case that if you miss a game, even if the reason you miss games is because you're busy winning the World Cup, unlucky, you lose your place. And the fact that that's uh, Lissandro Martinez is a player who Ten Hag loves. He bought him. He kept faith with him when he had a couple of rough games. Martinez was then brilliant. Doesn't matter. And, and that gives all the players a certain level of confidence because they know the manager trusts them, but they know if they don't play well, they're going to be sitting at the side. And Luke Shaw, you talked about, he's one of those who he, it was always mentality with him. I mean, I remember when Louis van Gaal was saying, this is the year of Luke Shaw, just before, just before he did that, he had that terrible injury. But with Luke Shaw, he's one of those players who all the things that you would want technically, physically were there, but his personality was not naturally one of those who, one of those that is given to elite level sport, where you have to be relentless, you have to be cruel, you have to be remorseless, and you have to keep doing it every day in training and every game twice a week. Luke Shaw wasn't that. He's not a natural Casemiro. Where, but what happens is when you put him in a team and the team's working and he's playing regularly, he's found that kind of strength. And he found it for a little while under Ole, then he lost it. And then under Ten Hag, he lost his place to Manassia and presumably he had to think that the manager has signed someone to play my position who is quite a bit younger than me. If I don't play well, I'm gone. And he's responded to that challenge. And the more it's that same virtuous circle, that the more you know that your place is under threat if you don't play well, the more if your mentality is not right, it can fire that mentality because otherwise you've got a massive problem. Um, you mentioned Ericsson just at the begin- beginning of the question. I-, I probably wouldn't have played Ericsson in that game. I would have played Anthony and I would have played Fred because I wouldn't have wanted United to get overrun in midfield like they did the last time they played City. But obviously Ten Hag knows more about football than I do. And was what he did was he decided that the goal threat of Anthony was not as important as the control of Ericsson. So suddenly, as you say, you've got all these players that want to take the ball and more than that, they know what to do with the ball when they get it. And that gave them the opportunity to control the game. And that's not something United have been able to do against anyone good under anyone post-Fergie, apart from Ten Hag. And that's what been one of the biggest changes. And United won at City twice under Ole. And they played really well in both of those games. And they were the better team, I felt, and they deserved to win both of those games. But what they're getting now is the ability to actually be the team that decides what happens in the game, to be protagonists, as the kind of foreign managers often like to say, in one of those words that you never think about using to do with football until you hear someone whose language isn't English say it and you think, oh, that's actually a really good way of talking about it. And United are now able to be the protagonists in the big games, and that's because of the way that Ten Hag has got them playing, but also the personnel that he's able that he's choosing for for those games and picking constantly picking the right teams at the right times. Yeah, I, I think the Bruno uh, conversation is interesting to have as well. People are, are saying, oh, Ronaldo's gone, Bruno's back. And it's like, I don't think that's just it. I don't think that... Um, I, th- I, I remember, I think Miguel Delaney had the... Um, somebody referred to Bruno as tactically anarchic. And uh, I got the sense that 
um, Solskjaer in particular was a manager who was of the Roy Keane school. You're a professional footballer. You're really good. You go out and do your job. And that was the level of instruction that a lot of players got. And for a time, Bruno really responded to that. And uh, now it looks like Bruno is a world-class player who is getting better as a function of the system as opposed to just a player who's going to have moments in the game. And that's a transformative thing as well because all of a sudden... He's a 7 out of 10 every week. And 7.5 and 8. And 8.5 and out of 10 every week. And it's it's to a pattern of play where everybody else understands, okay, if he does that, I can do this. And actually, Rashford gets better. And even, uh, even Martial or whoever gets better as a result of it. Yeah, with Bruno, I, I guess I, I, I didn't agree. I, mean, I spoke to Miguel about this. I didn't agree with him on that point. I felt that Bruno was playing that way because that was the way he had to play that basically everything went through him because there wasn't anyone else whom it could go through because who, who the other midfield players were. So his job was to make goals happen. He has a genius for making goals happen. So he would get the ball and he'd keep trying stuff and he'd often give it away, but that was his role in the team. But quite soon after he joined United, I listened to a podcast. This is a ridiculous thing to say, so bear with me anyway, where he talked for best part of an hour and a half, I think, about footballs. The United official podcast saying that he wanted to play as an eight, but when he finished, he felt that he'd also have the ability to play as a six. And he's so intelligent in the way that he talks about the game and the way that he thinks about the game. And also when I watch him play, like his understanding of space, his ability to play killer passes, to arrive in the box at the right time. I found it really hard to believe that playing as a number eight rather than as a number 10 was, was beyond him because football is not that difficult to understand. And it felt like just hearing him talk about it and not just hearing him talk about it, but hearing the way he talked in general in his, in his second language made me think that this is an intelligent, driven, charismatic bloke. There's not a chance that in a different team that functions differently, he wouldn't be able to do a slightly different job. All he needed was a more defined structure and better players around him because the stuff he he could already do the difficult stuff that most other people couldn't do. What he needed to do more of was just the stuff that keeps it ticking over. And I couldn't understand why it would be the case that he couldn't do that if that was what was required of him. And what we're seeing now is that that is the case, that he's now more of a number eight. He doesn't have to create everything that the team creates because he's got other great creative players around him. He's not the whole team. He's the leader of the team and he's a functioning part of the team. But he's not tactically anarchic at all, I don't think, that he will still try stuff. And I'm sure there'll be times where I still watch United and it's like, come on, Bruno, don't do that. But... He's not trying to play the killer ball all the time because the team isn't reliant on him doing that in order in order to create stuff. And because he always had that drive and that work ethic, I always felt that he would have the ability to just play a slightly different position because I felt that he had the game intelligence to do that. And I think that I'm not right about everything, but I guess I feel like I was probably right about that one because that's what we're seeing from Bruno. And he was excellent again the other day and he's been really good in... One of the criticisms of him previously was that he didn't do enough in the big games. And I think that was one of the... I mean, you can blame him for that, and I think that's fair. But one of the reasons he didn't do enough in the big games was because United had so little of the ball in the big games that he ended up a lot of the time just trying these Hail Marys all the time because Mm -hmm. he knew that he wouldn't get enough of the ball that he could just keep the ball moving because United didn't have the ability to keep the ball moving. Whereas now in these games, he can just keep play some continuity football as well because he knows... 
that the opportunity is to make goals happen, which is still his principal job, that will happen. And even though he's, he is a slightly different player now, I think he's still created more big chances than anyone else in the league. And so that, that feature is the most important thing. Can you make goals happen? And that never leave him. But as you say, he's now doing all the other stuff as well. And he's a brilliant footballer. And I, I'm not surprised to see it. I don't know what to say. He's, I'm not, he, he's a brilliant footballer. Briefly, uh, Daniel, on um, on Anthony Martial, like you mentioned, uh, Ten Hag's, I guess, aversion to to remorse, and that, that was something we saw with Ronaldo and with Pogba, with Lingard, and with some of the the Deadwood in that in that team. Um, Anthony Martial's attitude at the weekend, he wasn't chasing down balls. He was getting a bit of slack from fans. I don't know how fit or otherwise he was, but I mean, he was clearly deemed fit enough to start the match. Um, but he was just. His performance was terrible on, on Saturday and it, it's been a recurring theme of recent weeks. You see Vaud Veghorst sitting in the stands as well, ready to go from uh, from this week. So uh, do you see Anthony Martial having a future at Old Trafford? Um, I don't I don't know. I would say that the way Ten Hag spoke about Martial in pre-season, he, he really liked him. Um, and I think that's partly because Martial is a lot of what Ten Hag wants in a striker, just a kind of all-purpose centre-forward who, in theory has some pace, can come short and hold it up well, can run in behind, decent finisher, can run with the ball. Can do The best version of Martial can do all of those things. I think even the best version of Martial, United ideally would still want someone who's a bit better than he is, but he's a lot of what Ten Hag wants in the centre-forward. Now, I can't comment on how fit he was at the weekend, and maybe he wasn't fit enough to press in the way that Ten Hag wanted, and that's not his fault, he was picked. And maybe he did his best, maybe he didn't. But obviously with Martial, there's a course of dealing where he doesn't quite do the things that he should do because he just, he just doesn't. He doesn't have necess- the intensity that is required. So, yeah, you mentioned Weghorst. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Weghorst start against Palace because he's been playing, he's fit. I think he scored last weekend. So I think that Martial has a problem because he hasn't done very much, as you say, since coming back to retain his place now that there's an alternative to him. So he might get another go if Ten Hag thinks it's a fitness issue, but if he thinks it's a commitment issue, then, then I think we'll see Veghorst at the, at, um, in midweek, and if he plays well, we'll see him stay in the team until until he doesn't stay in the team. Uh, are City good enough to recover from this? Is there an obvious sign that they will be able to recover from this? Yeah, of course. Um, City are the only team in this in this title race. I mean, who knows who's even in the title race, but who we know can peel off 13 wins in a row if that's what it takes to win the title. We know that City can do that. Um, I've been saying for, for seems for several seasons now that the best Guardiola team, I think, he's had at City by far, was the first team that he won the league with. Um, in the kind of fantasy matches that we have in our heads, I think that that is the best non-United team of the Premier League era and definitely the team that I would be most trepidatious about the 99 team or the 08 team facing. I think that, that was a brilliant team. The current team and the one that has been winning leagues over the last couple of seasons, I think, is a good team, but they're much easier to get at than that team were because they're not as dominant in midfield. They don't have Fernandinho, they don't have David Silva, they don't have, and they don't have Sergio Aguero. Now, they've replaced Aguero, Aguero with Haaland, but they don't have the same midfield control, which makes it easier to get at the back four that has always been a little bit dodgy. But because they have a goal scorer who scores in almost all the games and they have the knowledge that when it comes to the clutch, they can they can do it. They'd still be my favourites to win the title, just about, but they're under quite a bit of pressure now. If they yeah. drop points again before Arsenal do, then they're in really big trouble. And I mean, if, if, United, if United beat Arsenal at the weekend, then obviously things change again. 
But I do think that City are just about favourites to the league. Their best is is the best. The, the way they played against United is probably a level of football that is beyond all the other teams in this league and probably quite a little bit beyond that. But what they're not doing at the moment is making sure that they win games when they're not playing well. And Arsenal, you've got to say, Arsenal's the run Arsenal have been on is incredible. The yeah. amount of points they have this season from the amount of games is incredible. And you have to congratulate them for that. They benefited from a really a really easy start that allowed them to play themselves into form. And I think that's important, particularly with a team that is still kind of forming. I always think back to United in 06-07, where people didn't think that they were going to win the league. They had a really friendly this friendly fixture list in the first 10 games. They won loads of them playing great football, and then they went on from there. And I think Arsenal got that too, and they're now ram full of confidence, and they're going to be hard to stop, I think. All right. Daniel, good stuff. Thanks a million. No, see you again, everyone. Daniel Bye. Harris giving us his thoughts there this morning. If you've got views, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can always uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Now, we do want to tell you about a brilliant charity event that's happening at Rascals Brewing Company in Inchicore this coming Wednesday. That's January the 18th. It's called Manawsome, celebrating the success of Irish women in sport. It's all to raise money for women's aid. And it'll feature an array of brilliant speakers, including the World Cup-bound Republic of Ireland defender Louise Quinn, Irish hockey legend Roisin Upton, former MMA champion Ashling Daly, and plenty more, and it'll be hosted by our own Ashling O'Reilly. Tickets are €20, Euro and all proceeds will go direct to Women's Aid. Go to rascalbrewing.com to get your tickets now. At uh, 8.39 this morning, we say good morning to Carl Milani. Carl, good morning to you. Good morning, lads. How's it going? Uh, the weekend was busy, but the morning has also been busy. Yes, uh, Australian Open Tennis is on, the reaction to all the weekend sport, but it was a colossal, <laughs> like the amount of sport on this weekend was colossal <laughs> by any stretch. I didn't know where to look for yeah. half of it. Yeah, um, it was just one of those great weekends. And uh, lots happening this morning as well. Came in to the news that Eddie Jones uh, took the Australia job. I mean, is it just me or like, I mean, is rugby becoming a bit more like football now in terms of departing with uh, managers at a quicker rate? That's two big nations. Well, David Rainey made it through the November internationals. And I like that France game was sensational. Well, just they looking were, through the results, they were they were beaten narrowly in a couple of games that they lost, and they won narrowly, obviously, in a couple of matches as well. So I mean, it wasn't a crisis by any stretch. Could easily have beaten us. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of a risk, isn't it, going with Eddie Jones this late? I would think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eddie Jones. Although Eddie Jones, short term, you know, um, while he's in and uh, inspiring slash cajoling slash whatever else getting people ready and um, making sure that they're doing their work in the short term is fine. But they've signed him for a five-year deal. He's going to take them yeah. to the next World Cup, which they're hosting. And he's also involved with the, the women's side as well, which is an interesting uh, departure in terms of the appointment. I just wonder how much of an impact can you have on a team in that space of time, uh, particularly in a sport like rugby, where it seems to take a, a little bit longer to impart your ideas on the team. But mm. his quotes haven't taken the job. He certainly thinks that they can win the World Cup whether he's trying to instill some confidence into their uh, does players. He to, does he have to come up against any old, old familiar faces to do that? Mm. I think they're on course to play England in the quarterfinals. Oh, delicious. Feels a bit like Jose Mourinho going back to Chelsea. Like, Eddie Jones has won the World Cup with Australia no. 20 years ago. No, no, they were beaten in the final. Oh, sorry. Took them to the final 20 yeah. years ago. Sorry, Johnny Wilkinson, if you're watching, apologies. Um, <laughs> but it just feels like a, a massive risk. I feel a little bit sorry for Dave Rennie in this. Like oh. it's January 2023. He's probably planning for yeah. years for this World Cup. Um, look, I understand it, and from a media perspective, and in terms of something to talk about, I mean, clearly we're delighted that Eddie Jones is in the job. He must do the world's best powerpoints. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something about Eddie Jones that um, that middle aged men can't help falling in love with. Like the RFU, and even after the last, you know, when it looked like, okay, yeah, you you burned bright, you got us to a World Cup final, and then you know injuries cost us dearly in that final. And fair enough. But you, that would have been a natural break, and it's like, no, no, I can do this again. Absolutely, don't worry. I've got, I've got my, my plan is we're going to win the World Cup, and uh, and now it's like two interviews. I think like one with Five Live and one with somebody else, and all of a sudden Australia like Eddie Jones. Oh my God, you're the man we always wanted in our lives. Come on, <laughs> yeah. So, what? What? Apparently, America wanted him. Japan wanted him. Man in demand. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, what is it? The, the Twilight Zone that's what it feels like the Twilight Jones you could say is he, is Steve he, Borthwick just naming his first squad Eddie Jones taking over Australia is he a Jedi mind master that like just people look at Eddie oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. well he has those WhatsApp groups doesn't he credits with, will with do all the other mm. sports coaches yeah. he's doing something right mm. I mean the fact that they gave him the women's side of things as well mm. he's managing a lot you, know, you wonder is he managing too much like does he have his finger in too many pies in Australia now with this contract yeah the length of the contract I think is the thing that got people five years the fact that they're giving him a guarantee Will he still be moonlighting uh, in Japan mid-season the way he was when he was in England? I presume there'll be a couple of books along the way as well. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He is He is incredible. He's Fair play to Eddie Jones. Character. It certainly has spiced up that side of the World Cup draw. Yeah, certainly has. Certainly has. And, uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting. But, he, he, like, his record is good. His record is good. You yeah. can't argue with it. And he has a, his own style of going about things. Um, but it's going to be a very interesting year. So, what eight months to the to the World Cup for him to try and sort things out, and um, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But pretty surprising news, I think it's fair to say. John O'Gibbs was sacked overnight as the Claremont manager, uh, head coach as well. Obviously, he had been the uh, head coach when O'Gara joined La Rochelle. So you can see how difficult these jobs are to keep. And he, he obviously left La Rochelle. Um, and join Claremont thinking that was career progression for him um, I do wonder if, if Gibbs might end up being part of Eddie Jones' backroom team I mean I, there's no reason to think that I, there's never, the never been linked before but like um, you know Gibbs obviously has a big reputation was involved maybe John Gibbs comes back to Leinster now is that possible is he suddenly in the in the mix for replacing Lancaster I'm it looks like they're going to try and replace Lancaster from within at Leinster, but just another interesting little thing in, in rugby over the last 24 hours. Very certain specific types of personality, I'd imagine, ha- uh, get to work under Eddie Jones. Like, not everyone could do that job. That's tough. You know, being being in his backroom team, you yeah. have to put up with his personality. And I, I think maybe if you're taking the job now, you take it to the end of the World Cup and you see what how the land lies after that. Mm. It, a lot of teams in flux between Wales and England and Australia head into the World Cup year. Ireland are not in flux, lads. It's... It's coming up green. Let me tell you, World Cup year, we're going to win the World Cup. Keep counting those chickens, Shane. <laughs> Keep counting those chickens. <laughs> Look at the positives. Uh, what did you make of the the um, club finals yesterday? Yeah, um, two very very good games. I think the the stuff that happened at the end of the Fuss uh, Stewartstown Harps match kind of overshadowed what was a very good game of football. Um, I'm struggling to think of like David Clifford. Has there ever been a, a player as prominent as David Clifford in the history of Gaelic football? That is just just has that mega superstar status. Well, like, do you ever remember in All-Ireland we, Junior and Intermediate Club final weekend where we're all obsessing over the Junior final and not even talking about... Like, Rathmore yeah. beating Galbally has just... Nobody cares <laughs> because it's the Cliffords. It's the Junior final, but it's the final everyone wants to watch. The Junior final could potentially get just as much, if not more, publicity than the Senior Club final. I mean, like, Kelmacott and Glenn have been given its own weekend away from the, the other two, but... 
Every, like we had the conversation in the office on, on Friday afternoon who is the most talented sports person alive right now like I was putting forward like, and I don't mean best sports person I mean someone who makes their sport look easy as in look they've all put in their 10,000 hours in all their individual sports but who makes it look like they ha- didn't even need to bother Ronnie O'Sullivan was my shout as the most talented sports person alive can, really? play, can play with both hands um, can turn it on when he wants to turn it on you're having him ahead of LeBron James Um, I would yeah, ahead of Patrick Mahomes. I I have Ronnie O'Sullivan at the top of of most talented sports people. Ahead of Steph Curry. Nick Kyrgios has been whispered in my ear by by Colin Buick. But uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan didn't change the sport. He did. How? How did he not change snooker? Because he he just was better at it than anybody else. He hasn't changed it. Yeah, but he, he made it sexy. The the Maverick. He followed the mantle of Alex Higgins and Jimmy White. Followed the mantle. Yeah, but followed the mantle. LeBron's following the mantle of other people. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar they're all following the mantle of these lads they're on these lads' shoulders there's different generations LeBron I don't know LeBron I, I think there's there's a case for Steph Curry most talented like sorry for changing the sports and like uh, realising that you can drain threes and win titles in a way that yeah. you couldn't possibly before like Steph Curry's a little guy at 6'5 or 6'6 six, six yeah, he's definitely up there He's definitely up there. Like, I mean, is he actually six three? We've had this conversation so many times. I can't actually remember. Is he six two? Six two sounds about right. I think he's six three. I think he's a little guy at six three. Yeah, yeah. we'll give him the extra uh, extra inch. But lads, of different shouts. Like Tiger Woods is obviously the best golfer, but is he the most talented? Does he make it look easy? The sport. Rory probably makes the sport look easy. Cliff, Clifford is what you're saying. Is Clifford yeah. in that conversation? Oh, 100 percent. He makes his sport look easy. There's no doubt that Clifford has put thousands of hours of practice into what he does. But the way in which he moves and the way he plays, you know, it's like Wes Hulan, the street footballer. You know, we know Messi makes the game look easy. Wes Hulan makes the game look easy. I'm not putting them on the same pedestal at all. But Clifford makes Gaelic football look simple. Roddy is a good shout, says Stephen Caulfield. Michaela says Alex Higgins made snooker sexy. Never forget that Alex Higgins was a wife beater. Never forget that. Mm. He was a wife beater. Like, so you can say he made it sexy and you can say the name in an airport after him, but he was a wife beater. Uh, Stephen Caulfield said it's not that hard to hit a three-pointer Steph Curry I mean Jesus okay maybe not once no but but to break all the records and to win championships on the back of it um, the the scenes afterwards like I, I, there's um, a piece by Eamon Sweeney in the Indo today toxic mac- macho culture needs to be rooted out by GEA and he goes to say that Stewartstown have uh, have form four years ago an ugly brawl between both sets of players in a county championship match against Straban hit the headlines and led to multiple suspensions. In 2006, five players suspended, uh, two for 36 weeks, and the club was fined two and a half grand after a post-match melee in an Ulster match against Bally McNabb of Armagh. Tyrone as a county also has a reputation for this kind of thing. They tend to blame anti-Northern bias, but Derry or Down or Fermanagh don't have the same rep. Tyrone's hasn't been concocted out of fresh air. Siege mentality hanging off that again. Like it's, There is this thing in Tyrone of, it's, it's not our fault, it's your fault. Like it's not it's not Paulie Clifford's fault that he got a elbow straight in the snout yesterday. Do you know he had blood coming off him as he walked off the pitch? Like it was a horrific, horrific. Ass- sorry, assault is the word for what that was. Um, and and look, you say Stewartstown of of priors here. There's a lot of clubs in Tyrone that have that have priors in this in this kind of thing. Um, luckily, it didn't quite spill over the, the Rathmore Galbally game. I did. We we didn't talk about this. The the um, the. The GA did hand down massive suspensions after the Nave Barogue and Owlert uh, Leinster Intermediate Hurling Championship a couple of months ago. Fair play to them for doing that. You would hope that something similar will come of... It, it, like, that was a much worse brawl because that ended up in the stands. 
uh, and it's kind of hard to pin individual things on on the, the so after the match there was still mouthing going on there was no sense of like oh the full time whistle leads to an end in this because um, I don't know it just feels like something's creeping in some kind of yeah. is it post COVID madness I don't know well like we mentioned the Anton Coyle incident that was the incident that probably led to the the whole thing spilling over after the game because it was so filthy and so dirty um, like the GA need to I think the GA as you say they're starting to step down in terms of suspensions like will Anton Coyle get a, a 96 week ban from the game club and like even I, I think that would be fair like that's the sort of that's the sort of elbow that needs to be taken out of the game completely and the only way to do it is to stamp down heavily Any thoughts Carl? I think we've mentioned here on the programme a couple of times in the last number of months about um, stuff like this happening at J matches so it seems to as you said Jerry, maybe post-Covid and stuff like that it has there seems to have been a, an emphasis on it and that it has happened regularly obviously the spotlight was on yesterday's match because it was a final and it was Crowe Park but I'm sure there, there have been other instances away from the spotlight that have happened as well um, I think it's on the J to try and deal with it forcefully and I think as you say to, to hand out bans as they deem necessary and that those bans are significant in length, I suppose, to deter people from from engaging in this sort of behaviour heading forward. But it does seem like it's it's happening more regularly. Certainly, when you pick up the papers on a Monday, there have been more instances. It seems like yeah, yeah. it feels the last way. three or four months. There's leeway given because it's an amateur. Ma- imagine, say, Johnny Sexton or someone, a rugby player at the weekend, does that. What Anton Coyle did. How long would they get? Fairly significant. Yeah, 100%. You know? It shouldn't be different because it's an amateur sport. Give him a little bit of leeway. You know, he has to go back and do his go job. To work, yeah. yeah. These lads are... He, he did that on television. Yeah. Like, he knew he was on television. And, and that's the best part that. about it, that we did actually get to see this. It was on telly. I think um, it was... And it's such a pity because it was a brilliant match. 100%. A fantastic match. And, yeah, and just spilled scored. over. 11 points, 8 points from play yesterday. And then the, the intermediate final was a, a cracker as well. And we should say it's a fantastic initiative that these competitions were introduced 20 odd years ago yeah. for clubs to get to Crow Park it's funny how Kerry and Tyrone seem to hoover up all the, ta- all the titles yeah Madness. They obviously there's something about the way they structure their football that's really working for both counties uh, Carl Diver says David Clifford the best player in the country should make junior football look effortless um, it, the thing is that he gets treble marked though in this in a and way that he doesn't there was at senior and county level there was interesting quotes from him yesterday as well and that he feels nearly a more intense pressure playing for Fossa as he does with Kerry because yeah. his dad is, is his club chairperson his family is deeply involved <laughs> yeah. and there's so much expected of him I suppose but he has delivered in absolute spades and uh, I think he's going to get a month off. Uh, yeah, well, talk. that's what he was... He was telling everybody he was getting yeah, a month off. He was like, so I'm officially... Um, he deserves it. <laughs> I wonder what it. kind of a night they had in the Golden Nugget last night. <laughs> is that the name of the pub? There's no footage coming. That's, that's what the sponsor is as oh, well. Yeah. Like, I'll see you in the Nuggets. <laughs> you mentioned yeah. the, the carry and throw down. It's just the, the stab McFoley had up on Twitter last night. That's uh, out of 22 finals, 11 All-Ireland Junior Club titles for Kerry clubs. The next county is Galway on two. And an intermediate, it's seven intermediate all Ireland's now for Kerry clubs, and the next are Tyrone on three. So Kerry have a dominance when it comes to, especially junior and intermediate. Yeah, which is yeah. mad. Um, all right, Carl, good stuff. Thanks very much. Thanks, for that. lads. Cheers. Alan Quinlan's in the studio next. We're going to chat more Eddie Jones' new job and reflect on a brilliant win for Munster in particular. First, here's Kenny Cunningham talking with Stephen Doyle after they commentated on the North London derby for off the ball yesterday. Here is uh, Kenny's take on Matt Doherty's current form. He has been criticised quite a bit over the years and rightly so in some situations where his defensive efforts have not been good enough. Is it possible 
that he's improved defensively under Conte? Is there anything yeah. specifically that, that he maybe has done to make Matt Doherty a better defender? Yeah, I think there's an argument for that. Well, I've seen it the last kind of six months for Matt. He's been, been unlucky at uh, Tottenham. I think there's been times I've seen him playing. I thought he's going to stay and he's got to stay in the team now. And Conte's going to take him out. He's going to rotate or Emerson Royale in particular in that area of the pitch. I don't really get it, to be honest with you, particularly as you've suggested. Really feel as if defensively now Matt's playing as well as I've ever seen him. I think it's a little bit of an easy criticism at times. I think there was a stage in his career, certainly the defensive side of his game wasn't his strongest, but only because how productive, how good he was kind of going forward in attacking uh, areas of the pitch. But certainly of late, the last six months, I think he's really tied it up to the defensive side of his game. That's as good as I've seen him play. Mm. He's up against probably the outstanding left wing in the league this season in terms of Martinelli. He matched up really well against him. Didn't get done in any 1v1 situations. Defended his back post really well, kind of crosses in, into the box. And they're basically the fundamentals of full-back play. Don't let your opposition player get the better of you. Better of you. Didn't do that today with Martinelli. And, uh, you know, defend your back post area. The penalty box and the ball comes into that area. And that's exactly what he did. That was really hard done, boy, I think, when he got taken mm. off. Today. I couldn't understand it. You know, chasing a uh, couple of goals, sacrificing a, a defender. Why, uh, really surprised Conte took Matt off. Because you know the quality he has in attacking areas of the pitch. But that was no reflection on his performance today. I was really impressed. I'll be absolutely, massively surprised if he doesn't start again. Uh, in the next Tottenham game that's what he needs to do keep putting down laying down those types uh, performances and he must stay in that Tottenham team That's uh, Kenny Cunningham speaking with Stephen Doyle yesterday we've been talking about uh, Manchester team in red being back relying on all their traditional things of like being better than everybody else Munster also back Alan Quinlan Munster are back no, they're not. They are. Come on, this far. is the start of it. The results have been pretty good in the last number of weeks, to be fair. And um, but it's more than the results, right? Yeah, they're um, Graham Roundtree. You think when when they're struggling on Saturday and there's there's young players, new players coming onto the field, uh, new brigade really, who can hopefully be part of Munster in the next number of years, and they will be um, coming off the bench and stuff like that. I think it was, um, you know, twenty four nil at half time. You're thinking this is really really good and that uh, they'll get a bonus point win and win comfortably but they're still underpowered there you know they're lacking a little bit of uh, game management I think and, and you know a lot of those players have played in the lot a lot in the last six seven weeks so um, and there's always going to be a reaction if you go in at half time and you're Phil Dawson and Sam Vesti what are you saying to the Northampton players um, and there's a general natural reaction and you have the benefit of an extra man for that the rest of yeah, the game yeah and, and I think um, it exposed them a little bit in the second half and they they made some mistakes and errors but I think the way they dug in and they've shown a lot of resilience in the last couple of weeks which is encouraging um, you know like I said it early on no one expects Munster to to win win a trophy this year um, but it's a lot more positive than it was at the start of the season and there's some you know they have to develop more and they have to bring in some strength and quality but yeah but they're develop, they're developing the strength and quality as much as they possibly can by not just picking players who are their stalwarts. Like, I don't think there's any way on earth that Van Graan would have left Murray and Earls out of the matchday squad. It just it wasn't his style. He, he didn't pick the young players when he had the opportunity to. He didn't bring them through as a, as a matter of course. But yesterday, big selection to be made at the weekend, big selection to be made, and they made it. Yeah, they did. And... Um now it could have backfired, right? It could have backfired, yeah. But look, at some point, um, it's it's tough on on Conor Murray and Keith Earls, given what they've done. Um, I went through that myself. I got dropped for um, a game. I think it was two thousand and ten. 
away to London Irish in round one and uh, sometimes you can have the right attitude and you can be back in there and get another run so I believe Conor Murray and Keith Earls were very positive with the, the squad um, there was no head down stuff which I would expect from their boat um, you know, really good professionals, Good, always had good attitudes about them, and that's what you want. Um, I had in 2010, as I said, I got dropped and had to dust myself down, and I got picked for Toulon the week after. Um, obviously, Munster went to London Irish that game, lost. There was a couple of changes. You were delighted, were you? Well, no, I wasn't delighted, but I was delighted to be back in the group. But look, you kind of accept when you're in that yeah. bracket of your... You're kind of heading in, you're into your 30s. I was 34, 35 at the time, and, and you're thinking... Um, you know, you can't go in and beat the door down and say, why am why am I not starting? You can be upset and disappointed. And I'm sure Conor Murray and Keith Earls were. It's just tough from the timing. is tough, isn't it? But given the internationals, uh, the Six Nations squad being, being brought up, and you would love both of them to have a kind of a, uh, a surge like Johnny Sexton had. It was a couple of years ago, people were saying Johnny Sexton was finished. And, that I don't, and I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility that they will but the right thing for Munster to do was to get that depth it was a, it was a big call and it was a brave call and Patterson and Casey obviously um, the wings Calvin Nash Shane Daly have been doing well again they look like they're being coached now look at the form of Mike Haley um, these guys were, were players last year that people were questioning should they be playing at all and are they good enough now they're showing the quality they're not tearing the world apart uh, here but they're doing very, very well and they're showing a lot of promise. Um, so they were big calls and I don't think those, you're right, those calls wouldn't have been made last year. Even those calls, Cunny, I'm just looking at this, uh, reminding myself of the substitutions he made with a, with a quarter left. Like Carberry's off for Rory Scannell and included there as well, Peter Mahoney coming off. So like you've, you've, you've got lads coming off, coming on the pitch with an average age of 23, lot, like less experience. So he clearly trusts these young players if with a quarter left, with Northampton coming back into the game, He's bringing off experience and taking on youth. There's a level of, of trust there. Yeah, and it's not always. Uh, sometimes when you're watching the games, you're kind of going, "Oh God, is that the right call?" Yeah. Or you know, there's an inclination to think, "Close it out here." And and and. But they were they were brave in what they did, and the coaching team. And I think Graham Rountree is trying to. All you want from any coach is they tell you the truth and they say, "If we give you, we're going to give you a chance, and we trust you and believe you, and all that kind of stuff." Players will always say that, and if they believe the coach backs it up with with actions um, it makes a huge difference and you create a really strong spirit and a strong bond so yeah he made those calls and um, they're big calls um, sometimes they can you kind of go is it damaging to the player coming off I see when Joey Carberry's coming off I'm saying is that mm. how, how's he feeling what's he thinking here um, they're the type of calls that happen at Leinster all the time but because the strength and depth is so intense you just accept it with Munster it's been like oh they have to play these players every second you can never take a manny off because the players coming in are, aren't going to be anywhere close to him as good but actually in the long run all that does is cement that you're stuck with that you've got to like Roundtree it seems is thinking both immediate short term but also long term here to build that level of competition for places and you might go off with Ireland fair enough but when you come back if the lad who was in your place is playing really well you're going to have to fight to get back in what you did with Ireland isn't the be-all and end-all the way it would have been previously, where everything seemed to be picked on reputation. Yeah, and you want that um, You want that for international squad members coming back to feel like they've got to really work their socks off to get back in again. Um, we, we've seen that, and, and listen, they're, they're very treadbare, aren't they? The second row, um, they have a number of second rows out, which, which counts against them a little bit um, in the power stakes. But 
Um, I think the fans like Graham Rowntree as well. I think he's been honest in his interviews. He hasn't shirked away from being critical of them and saying it's not good enough. Um, but given the resources and what they have and the change of a lot of young players coming through, someone like John Hodnett coming into into the side and coming off the bench, bringing energy. Uh, Ken Dillon has, has, has done very well. Um, Coombs, talk about Coombs for a bit because there was um, just a bit of, I don't know, as a second season syndrome or concern that he hadn't kicked on to the level that we thought his spectacular athleticism and, and rugby brain, it seemed, was going to allow him to. And there was a setback. But like, most young players have setbacks, right? And, and they do, yeah. And what we're seeing hopefully now is a, is a surge. Yeah, and I think that there's still a lot more in Gavin Coombs if, and he probably st- still needs to work on, and be, be more consistent. I think having moments... Uh, consistent moments in the game, but his form of late is is um, has changed. Um, you go back to what happened probably in November with that 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 game against New Zealand. Um, disappointing for him. He was then on the bench in Cork, um, a little dip in form, and you know players do have this. Young players, and you just look at Caelan Doris, Jack Conan, these guys in the last number of years the amount of involvements they have in the game and what's required as, as as a number eight now getting your hands on the ball regularly not just the pick and goals where he scored a lot of tries in the last couple of seasons Gavin Coombs he's now getting more involvements he's incredibly athletic powerful and I've said this from the start you know he's the kind of guy that if I was tackling um, so he, he he's a lot of leg drive and but he, does he hurt the opposition enough for his physical size? And I think there can be a little bit more in that aggression and that, that kind of swatting players off, getting the ball in wider channels because he's quite quick as well. Um, but in recent weeks, we've seen a, a real uh, return to form of him and uh, I think he has ability to go higher and he's got to do it consistently. And then if he does, he's going to be in the Irish um, mix and and certainly in the mix for the World Cup selection if he delivers it regularly and has a real presence, not just when it comes to scoring tries close in. Well, sometimes it's a, like is the fact that he wasn't uh, down for con- uh, inclusion by Andy Farrell in November. Um, you know, Roundtree kind of hinted at that after the game at the weekend that you know maybe that was the kick up the ass that that Gavin Coombs needed. Sometimes players need that change, and it, ha- it seems to have helped yeah. him. It has, yeah, and I think there's still he's still just. Um, without putting too much pressure on him I think he's doing really well he looks like he's comfortable he's happy um, he's enjoying his rugby again and he's a very very good player who's a big physical specimen um, I just think it's that those multiple involvements that Paul O'Connell and Andy Farrell love from players and need and that's what the modern day international game requires and I think he's getting there and he just needs to to keep building on his game but it's very positive for him and for Munster and he deserves massive credit because he's still a very young player yeah yeah, yeah. And look at his strike rate even from tries like what Zebo's on 69 he's on 29 already 25 <laughs> years of age he's, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's hunting down that record yeah it's a real eye for that try line <laughs> even though a lot of them are close in but yeah. he's just so hard to stop there uh, we've given Ulster a lot of grief over the last 4 or 5 weeks and, and they deserved it but um I hate the moral victory thing, but like that's definitely a moral victory when you go to the European Champions yeah. and with 83 minutes on the clock, you're still winning. Yeah, it's been a dreadful run for them, really, as regards results. Six losses in the last seven. So um, 
a heartbreaking one for them because I think they they probably could have and should have won that game. Um, the conditions were horrendous and it was so difficult to play. And at times I think they were nervy and trying to contain La Rochelle a little bit. It was very difficult to play any sort of rugby. But um, Dan McFarlane's argument that they should have probably should have got a penalty try before half time is very legitimate. Right. I think um, they were putting so much pressure, those numerous penalties. And a sin bin against La Rochelle. And I thought it could have been a penalty try and it could have been really significant because it was just one of those games that there was a score here or there was going to decide the game. Um, there was no messing around with the penalty tries in the Gloucester game. Straight in, that's a penalty try. You've collapsed them all, away we go. Why was there a difference? Is it inconsistency of refereeing? Well, I think it's just their view as regards is the try definitely be going, to, going to be scored? Um, watching them back again, I think certainly one of them looked like a... Ulster were going towards that line Nick Timoney drops one as well which is just it sums up that unfortunate kind of those little breaks that you need in a match Is this a turning point for them though where they go to a match where we expect them to get hockeyed and it's going to be complete disaster but actually they're coming away from it thinking I don't know Ger to be honest because um, they're pretty brittle at the moment mentally and that's understandable when a lot of stuff has gone against them in the last few weeks I think it's what you believe in the dressing room when you look around and you believe that you're much you're stronger than this, you're better than this. If they believe that, yes, it can be a turning point. Um, they've sailed at home. They're, they're on three points. They've got to get a bonus point win, get to eight and hope for other results to go their way if they were to sneak in. Um, but it's highly unlikely that they'll get into their own 16. So ultimately, no matter what happens next Friday night, it could be real disappointment and more more reflection on the European results to lose three so far has been really really disappointing for them um, but it could be a turning point I think they showed a lot of grit and determination and they've probably been questioned a little bit on that in the last number of weeks um, fight but just that little bit of nous to try and you know get over the line and I think you know halfback has been a problem for them um, that game management and dare I say it, um, the man sitting in the stands who who comes on who was on here Friday morning, the Larishell coach, um, those kind of conditions, you know, he he would have been, you know, to have someone like that, yeah, um, on, on, as a number ten, putting the ball in the right areas. But um, they've had their issues, but I think they can take something out of it, and they need to try and find a bit of energy this week and 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 get a bonus point win against Sale, who. Um themselves are kind of clinging on Dan McFarlane was linked with the Leicester job I hadn't seen that and then he's asked about it in the aftermath and he's like yeah I've seen those I love my job here um, so uh, obviously the job that he's doing is being noticed and he's not getting any um, people aren't considering the last five or six weeks they're looking at the body of work that he's put together at Ulster if he's it looks like Leicester probably will hire from within but he's at least being linked with that job yeah and I think it's very difficult for him in the last couple of weeks um, you were given out to me for making excuses for Ulster and their travel and one o'clock and having to fly out on Sunday morning <laughs> for the sale game. And I still go back to that and I say, you know, for a player trying to get up and having pre-match meals and all that stuff, you still should be better than what they showed. Well, if it was just that one match that was wrong. Yeah, but then they had La Rochelle the week after, the Leinster, which the went against them coming half. down to the Aviva. You know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's more to it than that. 
Um, I think Dan McFarlane, by and large, has done a really good job. Small margins last year, they could have been winning the URC, but it's that consistency, isn't it, with Ulster and, and finding faults and um, opportunities. Opposition seem to do that at crucial times. Um, we've got to ask you about the situation with Eddie Jones, uh, where he gets sacked by England and Australia are like, yeah, come on down, buddy, five-year contract. It's incredible, isn't it? It's 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 hard to believe that um, you know this guy's plotting a World Cup success with England a couple of months ago, and he's talking about England um, still being on the right track and and being ready and and being real contenders for the World Cup, and now he'd be plotting against him. Um, I'm I'm not sure England themselves and the payout that he got and and. Um, I'm not sure they'll be entirely happy that they didn't put a clause in there that he can't work with another World Cup opponent in this calendar in this year like. which should have been put in because essentially you know you're possibly a Australia and England could be clashing on the quarterfinals and he knows their players inside out tactically um, the challenge for Steve Bortwick if that happens is to kind of rip up what, what has been done and certain calls and patterns and stuff like that which there's an argument to say it should be done anyway because yeah, England were very bland to watch. Yeah. And um, but it's amazing how this has happened. And <laughs> perfect scenario for Eddie Jones. He gets paid out, and uh, now he's a new contract for next. Presumably, years there's some offsets. He's, he's back on uh, the beach in Australia. There must be some offset language where if you get a new job, we don't have to pay you. There must be something like if there isn't, the RFU. Oh no, maybe that lawyers. will come out. But um, to for that to happen. Is a big if 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 there were, you'd imagine there should have been something put in because if you go and work with one of the the opponents like that yeah. so quickly, uh, but it's it's um, Australia's results have been poor and Dave Rennie's paid the price. They lost nine matches last year, and uh, it's harsh though. It's very harsh on Rennie, isn't it? Late fifty. The timing is. Is it harsh? On, is it harsh on him? It's their worst run of results since nineteen fifty eight. So if you put it in context and say, well. You January know, for World Is Cup it harsh or? then? You're a bit more ruthless, Gerald. Well, is it, it harsh? It's hard to argue with that. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's 1958, the, the worst run of results. Good, right? The performance against France, I thought, was sensational. Yeah. Like, they played such proper, old-school And Australian in fairness, rugby. he's had so many injuries this year. I think they could be a real danger I at the too. World Cup. <laughs> I really think they could be a real danger and a threat and a possibility at the now, World Cup. Eddie Jones might kill all the good attacking... It depends on way he approaches yeah. this now. If yeah. he goes in with the iron fist and trying to be absolutely ruthless with players, he could break them up very easily. But um, Can I just ask you about Jamie Osborne before we go? Um, so, he's not, he's not your stereotypical... Uh, he comes through as a full-back. That's his, like, when he's, when he's underage, but has got most of his rugby... At Leinster, at centre, he's a big lad. He is, yeah, superb. Six um, three, six four. He's caught. He's caught the eye this year, big time. And it's not for the flamboyant stuff. It's been small things that I've seen him do, and obviously he's shown a flamboyance now and real confidence. And and Saturday he was he was it was a outstanding performance for him. And I think there's a there's a real opportunity and. Essentially, this guy could go on and play for Ireland. He could be in an, a, a Six Nations squad. Robbie Henshaw is still a doubt, um, but he's another another wonderful find for Leinster, isn't he? Um, such a young player, so athletic. He's powerful. He's aggressive. You saw the offload down at Limerick for Luke McGrath when 
out of nothing so he can do that as well a uh, very direct player but um, a really really good player and it was brilliant on Saturday the post-match interview I think with Marcus um, was like and there's a, a troop of brothers I don't know how many brothers there are but there are more to come um, another Kildare breeding them down in nest there are they no. uh, like it's we can't stick him in the team yet can we or can we and the Irish team um, would you would you want to have a look and say like every other rugby I'd have him in around there and I, I'd be you know I wouldn't rule it out because, every other rugby uh, country six to 21 year old in the team for a while to see how they get on we're like ah, come back to me when you're 25 mm. yeah he's 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 definitely physically the one thing about young players you think when you put him international rugby is you worry about the physical side of the game he is physically well able for it so so why not I think he could be he could be a real contender for the Six Nations. And, um, and there is a versatility there in terms of where his best position is still to be established. Yeah, he could be. Uh, yeah, He looks like a centre to me now. You know, we see a lot of young players playing wing, full back. Um, he looks like a centre. He's that size, that physicality. We still don't have a second choice 15, do we? Like what? What if Hugo um, Keenan gets injured? Yeah, I think Mac Hansen played at fullback at the weekend and was really good. And I was listening to um, you know an interview with Andy Friend afterwards talking about um, when he came over to Ireland first. He he was informing Connacht prefers it. that he prefers fullback and right. that's his preferred position. I think comfortably he could play at fullback. Okay, I think so Mike Haley has done well. Um, I don't know if it's going to be enough to get him into a squad um, but he, they'll definitely consider him I think he's played really well in the last while but Mac Hansen is probably your next your next option to go in there as a full back OK um, John O'Gibbs sacked as well in the last 24 yeah, hours job available yeah I think their results have been really poor they've lost 8 games this year in the league 1-6 they're down in 10th in the top 14 so again it's kind of like the, the, the Dave Rennie Australia scenario Someone has kind of stood up on the board and said, "You know, Not good enough. enough. Yeah. Enough is enough here." They go to the Stormers the weekend, um, and could find themselves out. They're they're sitting eighth in Pool B on six points. So, what, what do you think is most likely? Because I know you've been working on the. Yeah, I've been looking there. on this for Munster. I think not getting the bonus point could be really significant. The Ospreys got a, a, a um, you know beating Montpellier with a bonus point. They're up to ten points. Munster are sixth at the moment. Montpellier seventh on seven points and Clermont eight on six points so Sale are, are, are ninth Ulster tenth they both have a chance depending what if Sale get a bonus point win they go to ten points and will will probably make it yeah. problem for Munster is they go to Toulouse so um, maybe a losing bonus point there will guarantee they'll probably still make it but could could find themselves out of the reckoning or could uh, find themselves in Dublin against Leinster yeah, if they finish eight, they'll they'll be in Dublin um, against Leinster, and um, it'll be uh, another interesting interesting game. Yeah, yeah. At least the fans won't have to you know pay for flights and all that kind of stuff. But um, it, it depends. Um, they can't focus about that. They've just got to make sure that um, they can see if they can get something in Toulouse. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, because we saw last year eight and nine points got teams through. Yeah, yeah. All right, good stuff, Queenie. Talk to you again on Friday. Thanks a million. 16 minutes past nine here on OTB AM. Here's what's coming up for you on OTB Sports Radio today. Uh, at one o'clock, OTB Gold is Colm Gooch Cooper. Splunk is uh, three. You had to be there. It's Timmy McCarthy. And Mick O'Connell at 80 is OTB Gold from uh, the vault at six. And then Joe is back tonight with Monday Night Rugby the football show and plenty more besides. You can follow off the wall across our social channels 
and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. After the break, Jenny Claffey is in studio to talk about the Australian Open. Here's Kenny Cunningham talking about Hugo Lloris. And before that, some more words of wisdom from the great GMAC. Testing, one, two, one, two. GMAC, one, two. GMAC's morning motivational moment. Or something along those lines. There's so many to choose from. Good morning. Graham McDowell here, uh, GMAC as you guys like to call me. Some Monday motivation now for you. May your coffee be strong and uh, your Mondays be short. Not much of a coffee man myself. I much prefer a cold beer. (laughs) I just can't resist them. Anyway, that's your uh, Monday motivation. See you tomorrow. GMAX morning motivational moment. Or something along those lines. There's so many to choose from. On the other side of that, though, can you talk to me about Hugo Lloris? Because back-to-back home games now, he's made big errors that have led to goals. How does that affect affect his defenders, the back three sitting in front of him? Oh, it drains confidence. It's as simple as that. It's, just, it's not just the past couple of weeks. I'd argue really for the last kind of two to three years, been looking at Lloris, too many of these mistakes. All keepers make kind of good saves. Any keeper playing his trade in the reasonably high level is a decent shot stopper and he produces a fair amount of decent saves, don't get me wrong. But in terms of kind of dominating his penalty box, showing kind of real personality, and really when those big moments arrive, as they did today for Aaron Ramsdale in the Arsenal goal, 1v1, first half against Son, 1v1 against Sessegnon, Spurs score in those uh, moments in the game. It could be a to- totally transforms the game, but it doesn't happen because Ramsdale doesn't allow it uh, to happen. He doesn't make a mistake. He's on top of his game. Lloris wasn't on top of his game again today. And though, when those situations arise too often, you've got to deal with it. Uh, as a manager, you can't allow it to continue to happen because, like you said, kind of drains confidence in the team. Defenders in particular, they look behind them. They can't totally trust the person who they see in their line of vision. You have to rectify that. And they've left it too long, Tottenham, for me. Got to go and get a better goalkeeper. It's as simple as that. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's 20 minutes past nine. Jenny Claffey is with us because the Australian Open has started overnight. Jenny, how are you? Very well. Thanks for having me here. Um, Already pre-tournament, there was loads of stuff to talk about. And now that the tournament has started, there's plenty to talk about. Nick Kyrgios is out. Naomi Osaka is out for the year, it looks like, having a baby. Um, And Djokovic has called a press conference because we think he might be injured. We're still waiting to find out what's going on here. Well, hopefully we don't see that dropping like flies like Nick Kyrgios just pulled out there last night. I was hoping for a bit of a spicy contention with him. This this Australian Open being at home, you know, in front of the Aussie fans. He was due to have a quarterfinal matchup with Djokovic if they both got there. So that would have been really exciting. Yeah, it'd be disappointing if we lose Djokovic. Uh, you know, the the well, he'd be playing for number one. Uh, he'd be trying to rival Nadal's 22nd Grand Slam so hopefully he's not going to put through he injured his hamstring I think so So we'll, let's see what happens The last three minutes there uh, Sasa Osmo the Serbian journalist who broke that news earlier this morning has just uh, tweeted pictures of Djokovic on a practice court Okay. so he has come out to swing a racket so he's a, being a bit dramatic <laughs> but you wouldn't, no he bet, could no be bet. testing it to see if he's match fit just yeah, like Kyrgios did but that's when Kyrgios is knocking about with Kakanakis uh, we won the doubles with last year and decided I, I don't am want to I, play am I, am I doubting here but is there not like always a, oh oh I'm really sick I'm injured ah, and then he goes and crush someone is that not <laughs> he does actually do that you look at some of his matches those injury timeouts those questionable injury timeouts but at that level and the age he's at 35 in tennis terms that's kind of a little bit older he has to be so careful you know and at this stage of, of, of the, the season at the very start he probably doesn't want to risk anything you know 
Yeah, I mean, he did the same in 2021 before the third round. He didn't practice and everybody got worried. I watched the, I watched the Williams, the King Richard, mm-hmm. uh, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario oh, pulling the trick of the, she's getting absolutely hammered by Venus in Venus's first tournament. It's like, oh, I'm injured. And then 12 minutes later comes out and beats the crap out of her. That used Takes to, the toilet break for... Yeah, the toilet break. The toilet break rule is is definitely a thing that should be reviewed. Like, yeah. how many times do you see players going off at the end of sets and then they come back and then they steamroll their opponents? Yeah. And the injury timeout—that's even more. The toilet, okay, you can kind of just. Is there a cap that. on how long they can be in. I guess that you can't really limit someone. And if <laughs> they need not. to go to the toilet, injury timeout, I think it's three minutes. If right. three full minutes yeah. on court, and then they can go off for a certain amount of time. Right. I'm not sure exactly how long that is. And then the toilet break. When I was playing, it used to you used to have to be back under the ten minute mark. But right. that's because the toilets were off site nearly <laughs> from the courts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that's a huge, that shift in momentum is massive at the end of a, t- a set. Yeah, Djokovic certainly seems to like to have that whole, obviously the siege mentality that he has uh, managed to create for himself through multiple different ways. But that whole kind of, oh, I'm injured, it's me against the world thing seems to suit him very well. So I'm I'm willing to bet, I could be proved wrong in the next eight minutes before we go off air, <laughs> that uh, he, this is all manufactured nonsense and he's going to be totally fine and when he's standing over the bloody corpse of whoever he beats in the final, it'll be like, oh, what, we can play this tape at that point. My hamstring what? Let's assume he's fit. Who's going to win this tournament? Djokovic. Right. It is Djokovic's to lose, I think. You know, he's, on, he's on a mission. Since September last year, he is on a mission. He's won, I think, 26 of his last 27 matches. And he's, he hasn't lost in Australia since 2018. He's almost as comfortable in Australia as Nadal is in the French Open. He's going for his 10th Australian Open. I think it's yeah. his to lose. Does the weight of the numbers get to? I'm sure Djokovic doesn't really care, but to match Nadal's 22 Grand Slam singles, like I'm sure it's on his brain, but he doesn't seem like someone who uh, would get too worked up about it. Yeah, well, he actually was asked in press uh, conference during the week um, how he felt about that, and he said he wants to be known as the greatest tennis player. So I'd say it's is. all he cares about, Shane. Yeah, to be well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, he doesn't get nervous thinking about the fact that this is to level Nadal's record. Like, he's not someone who lets that get the better of him, I suppose. Definitely not. No, he's so mentally tough. I think Djokovic, he, he's just one of the best there is in that, on that side of the game that, no, I don't think he lets those things phase him at all. I thought that's what exactly gets to him, isn't it? That he can't stand the idea of someone statistically <laughs> being better than him. Because that's what, that's what drives him. Like, Nadal hates talking about the Grand Slam record, even though he's leading it. He doesn't seem to have any public interest at the very least. But Djokovic, is the, every chance he gets, he talks about it. Isn't well, maybe I should say that won't stop him. Because yeah. like, I don't think that's going to be the thing that stops him. He's going to surpass that, that 22 Grand Slams for sure. I said a 30, 30, 30 is his number. I definitely you. think he's going he's gonna to get to 30. If he can stay fit and stop feigning these injuries, yeah, he should be. All the more reason <laughs> to assume that he's going to play this thing. Uh, was Kyrgios a realistic contender or had we seen enough from his form over the last six months of last year? Like Kyrgios plays so rarely sometimes that it's hard to know if he was going to be good enough to win this anyway. Yeah, I had him as kind of a dark horse for the tournament. I wouldn't say he was going to necessarily contend, but, you know, I think he could have better results here than he has in in previous years. You know, he had a great year last year, his best on tour. He seemed to be a little bit more up for it and, and kind of, training better and more motivated so we could have seen maybe better results from him but I don't think he could have contended for the title here as I said he would have met Djokovic maybe in the quarter final and, yeah. and Djokovic is just a scary scary player here in Australia What do you make of their loving Djokovic and Kyrgios yeah. remember two years ago uh, Kyrgios tweeted Djokovic as a tool when he was on about <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah. quarantine uh, uh, request that he asked for the players and now two years on their best buddies do you buy it? Not at all no well, what's, I don't he, what's th- happening there as well? 
I don't know, is that for the public? Because they're definitely not going out for dinner, the two of them. <laughs> and they said they would after Wimbledon, after the Wimbledon final, right. but like... Yeah, no. If, if they went out for dinner, we'd know all about it, wouldn't we? It would be all over social uh, media. Yes. Yeah, but I'd say that's a publicity stunt for both of them, for popularity. Like, people are, are going to be looking to, to follow that if that mm. becomes a bromance, but I don't think that's based on anything real. It's a shame with curious because... Like, if it's a cyst they found in his meniscus. Like, that yeah. sounds really serious. And his, he went to the press with his physio who said... He's looking at Indian Wells in March for a comeback. And yeah. like he's probably all about momentum. And if he doesn't play anytime soon, like might not see much of Kyrgios yeah. again. Yeah, they're saying he's going to be, he needs to go for surgery and that. And he'll be off for f- February. As you said, like if he gets any, any layoff, that could be it. He could be off focusing on other things back home in Australia. That's not tennis. But I do think yeah. he seems to have a bit more fire in the belly since last season. But he just, he's probably going for that one Grand Slam so he can finally retire. Who can beat who can beat Djokovic? Like it's a massive shame that Carlos Alcaraz is injured, but you look at Rude and Sitsipas, Like, is it more a is it more a hope that one can beat them, or is it is there an expectation that one of those players could maybe put it up to Djokovic on their day? Yeah, well, yeah, I think Nadal maybe in the final. Th- yeah. Those two will meet in the final. That could be a spicy matchup. But I have a contender. My contender for the men's side would be um, Felix Auger Aliazim, the guy we saw in, in Breakpoint. Yeah. He's the sixth seed. Um, he's a very good player. He's only 22. Again, coming in with great form. He's won 26 of his last 29 matches, won three titles at the end of last year. So he's really coming in and fresh. Um, so I mean he could be somebody who could beat him he's got a game to play against the top guys he played Nadal in the French Open last year and mm. was two sets to love up against him <laughs> um, but lost that so he's had experience at that high level but I, I can't really see anybody else in that draw like there are guys to look out for but I don't think guys who are going to beat Djokovic What about last year's finalist Daniel Medvedev what's happened with Medvedev in the last year? Yeah since last year he lost in the Australian Open final again two sets to love up against yeah. Nadal and has serious, just fallen off the, the radar really there he had his worst season on tour last year um, I think that match really impacted him that final because he had won the US Open the year before yeah. and was doing really well at a super season in 2021 and then since then he just hasn't been able to pick back up his, his level Isn't it mad how uh, winning one of those is supposed to be your breakthrough and free you from the psychological baggage of ever but it, it doesn't work that way at all it almost goes the opposite way. It adds more pressure then. There's more expectation. Obviously, then there's the media attention. There's so much that goes with those Grand Slams. We've seen it. How many one-time winners have we seen, especially on the women's side, mm. where then the pressure just gets them that it's so hard then to back it up? But even Dominic Team, when he won the US Open in 2020, yeah. talked about how finally it was such a massive relief was the overriding emotion that I finally won one of these things because of all the work he put in. And since then, Team's barely hit a ball. Yeah, well, he did get injured. He got injured, he but even the motivation when he came back, he said it just wasn't there. The hunger wasn't there. And he had won one, which makes you marvel at the likes of Serena Williams and can keep going. Nadal who keep him doing it. Like, that's yeah, but these guys thing. are training to win a Grand Slam. That, like those four Grand Slams a year, are the biggest thing, in the, the pinnacle of your career. And then, as you said, you get there and then it's the relief. And then it's like, what more? You then have to get back at the bottom of the mountain and start climbing again for the next one. It's such a difficult task, that mental strength you need to have, and um, which we saw if we could get on that point of break point, how, how the mental side of the game is just so, so important. Um, yeah, I just think that like once you win a Grand Slam, it is that relief, and then it's like okay, it's your motivation. Done it now. Does your motivation win then? Like I know Ash Barty won a few, but like retiring in her, her mid twenties kind of spoke volumes as to the mindset and the mental frailty that that is there for tennis players because it's such a tough sport to keep that concentration going. Even Kyrgios, I think, said if he wins a Grand Slam, he's going to retire straight right. away. Yeah. You understand that. Yeah, you can. I actually read Ash Barty's autobiography there over Christmas, and she was saying that she'd won once she won Wimbledon in. 
2021 was it um, that, that she was ready to retire then and then her, her team really kind of riled her up to mm. say look try and play the Australian Open and fin- finish at home and win at home and she knew that that was her last t- mm. tournament and if she won that that was it like she what more could she achieve in the game and at 25 she retired like it's a it's a scary prospect 25 to be retiring and I've done all you can do really in the sport mm. yeah. Who's going to win the women's? Again I think it could be Iga Svantec going to be the woman to beat um, there, she might have a few more challenges though than Djokovic will face on the men's side uh, she's got a, a kind of a meaty draw she's in the side of Andrescu she meets her in the third round um, and then she's got the Wimbledon champ Ribikina maybe in the fourth round she's got a yeah. tough path to the final uh, Jessica Pegula could also be a, a challenge she I think see, she? she's, yeah, third, hers, she's yeah. third yeah, but she's also in Shantek's half as yeah. well so I think whoever comes through between the Shantek Pegula half is going to win the the, grant, the Australian Open. And for people to look out for, who's the Felix Auger, Adiosim of the women's side for you? Uh, I think Coco Goff is my, my dark horse. Against Emirata Canu now in the yeah, second round. Yeah, in the second round, round yeah. yeah. And then Pegula is my contender, I think. That's your old friend, Al Jabeur. Yeah, it's funny, I, I don't have her backed for this tournament, yeah. Maybe I've just a bit of love lost there. Yeah, after. the rivalry. Still. I know. Yeah, that well, rivalry's still hot. I was watching her episode <laughs> in Point Break. And oh my God. Were you like, oh yeah, I know this woman, I know her well. Like, yeah, I know her mentality. Across, I know is that what she like. was like? And Do you remember much Definitely, of her? Yeah. Yeah, the, the nice, the, she has this lovely um, personality that comes across now. Definitely, she was only like 16, I was 18 when we played each other, so it, that wasn't there. There was that yeah. fiery teenager, hot headed, like, yeah, athlete that she has obviously now, but ha- has masked that a bit more. But uh, yeah, no, there, she is still that nice. She was nice then, and she's obviously lovely now. And from your own, like, from being on the tour yourself, what do you make of the documentary so far? The first five episodes of Breakpoint on Netflix? It hits home anyway. It's very accurate. Yeah, yeah the I think the the show is brilliant for highlighting the psychological um, nature of of tennis mm. and how mentally tough it is and the toll it takes on athletes and that constantly losing. You know, every week there's only one winner and you're always having to pick yourself back up. Um, and each week, you know, it's very lonely sport, lonely place to be when you're out there. And even you see in the show, those guys have, are surrounded by their entourage. It's still not even enough to, to pick them back up. Um, but definitely hit home. Yeah, like I remember it resonates the feeling of like when you lose and you're far away from home and you're on your own and you're then going, OK, I've got to pack up my bag and then off you go again on another plane somewhere else. And then it's always that hope and aspiration that you're going to be the, the last yeah. one standing at the end of the week um, yeah it, it really emphasised the, the the psychological side of tennis and how tough it really is it's brutal it, brutal is a word to describe it yeah it's brutal and how like you see you looking at those players and everybody I feel like can sympathise with them almost now and, and I'm sure it has won over you know tennis has won over a few fans like those guys with the, the two voices in your head there is that the angel and demon on your shoulder and in the heat of battle you're battling yourself mm. you forget about the opposition yeah. you're actually battling your own mind and in each and every one of the athletes we saw in Breakpoint that was a the, an issue yeah. and that there's such a fine line between like the fear of failure and the will to win <laughs> Like that's there for everybody. You don't want to lose, but you so badly want to win. I feel like it's no coincidence that Netflix are honing in on the individual sports like tennis and Formula golf, One yeah. and golf. Like just the, the mindset and the individuality of it. You, you've only yourself to blame in some ways, and you've only yourself to celebrate with in the in the good times well, as well. So, well, Maria Sakkari when she gets annihilated in the Indian Wells final, I guess Igor and then afterwards she's doing the warm down on the bike, and she just says, kind of in a resigned fashion, it was like, in this sport, you have to get used to losing because you lose more than you win, unless yeah. you're one of the big three. And I was like, she's like, and she's one of the best players in the world, mm. and she, it feels like watching her, she's like, I, I'm never going to be good enough for myself, or 
yeah. expectations around me. There is that, like that self-loathing they have. But, and, yeah, and, that's and, the word. Yeah, like that's where it's so brutal. It's like even if you are the winner at the end of the week, you know, you win and it dep- that's amazing. It's such excitement. And then you have to pack your bags and go to another tournament. Yeah. You really never get, you suffer the losses far more than you ever get to enjoy the wins in, in, in tennis and in individual sports. There's a viral clip already during the rounds. Rafael Nadal warming up before the French Open final next to Casper Ruud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Nadal goes on to win 6-3, love. So in hindsight, it looks like, yeah, he totally psyched them out. But is that not Nadal just being Nadal? That is Nadal being Nadal, totally. Like, he does that for every yeah. single match. But that, that stark contrast. That, though, like, in the, in the tunnel, because people haven't seen it, he's, he's sprinting in the tunnel and he's doing fake serves and he's like backhands to an imaginary ball and your man's standing there kind of going. <laughs> he, sharing that spa- very intimate space with his opponent yeah. in his first grand slam. It's, it's the moment where he asks, Kasparu goes, oh, how long more left? Yeah, roughly, yeah, yeah that's roughly the speaking. telling point. Yeah. <laughs> Around 30 seconds. Like, okay, Jesus, that's right. Yeah. The stark contrast between the two of them though, like, but that's Nadal, like, you'll see that he does it all the time. But yeah, Rude was so uncomfortable in that space. Like, uh, And then he gives a few like fakey shadow yeah. shots yeah, to be I like, mean, I'm like, here too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you, but you, you, you're not called out and introduced to every game, are you? Like, was it extra long because it's the start of the final? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they do. They do call out the players on and on the big stadiums. Anyway, they call right. them out. Yeah, but probably that felt like the longest minute of Casper Ruud's life. Like, are they doing the introduction of all of the the staff, all of the lines people? They're introducing final. Out. Yeah, there's more, probably maybe a little bit longer. But yeah. the players don't don't have to come out and wait for that. I understand they can wait and stay in the locker room until yeah. I think they give however long. It did feel a little bit like a ring walk where this game's over, this fight's over, that guy's won, this, this you know, mm. this is going to be a first round. In hindsight, game. it's easy to look back at that and see, yeah. oh yeah, he was going to kill well, him. Is there a player renowned, uh, to your knowledge, uh, of someone who tries to get in someone's head on the tour? Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> Nick Kyrgios. Look, oh, you have to look back at Nick Kyrgios and uh, Titsipas last year in Wimbledon, yeah. how he was trying to just psych out the opposition. Yeah, I think Kyrgios plays a bit of mind games with his oppositions, definitely. Um, and maybe Djokovic a little bit with his injury takeovers and, mm. and you know injury timeouts that he has. No, but I do think Kyrgios is definitely one that stands out to me. The talking during the match, even. Like, yeah, this very constant... Very speaking to the coaches and to himself. It's very distracting and no other player does that. Yeah. You know, and that's maybe his way of coping, but that's the opposition isn't used to that either, so that can psych you out completely. Is that frowned upon, or is that just seen as part of the game for players like Kyrgios? Well, because it's so unusual and nobody else does that, it's kind of like tennis is such a respectful game, it's almost unspoken that you don't act yeah. out like that. But well, as I said, whatever works for him. But uh, I do think that if he carried on like that behaviour he was kind of in Wimbledon last year, he won't get away with that for longer. Uh, your boy, Ujjur Ali Sam lost his first at 6 1, but has won the second 7 6. Um, with, with set in the third, it's against one of his. Um, uh, Canadian the pops still, yeah, he's, or, yeah he's very good that's a tough first round actually the, the um, Coco Goff and Emma Raducanu so Emma Raducanu obviously had her own injury crisis and it did look like it was a real one in fairness and she won fairly straightforward um, in the first round like this is a big big year for Raducanu you don't want to like lay her on too much but like last year was a completely lost year and the madness of the different coaches that they had they were cycling through um, everything needs to calm down for her and she just needs to play tennis and 
Yeah, I think this is a big year for her in terms of just getting back, like the love for the game and getting back competing and injury free and and all that kind of media attention and stuff. Kind of hopefully that will have settled down because it's been a year and a half since she won the US Open and just let her let her play her tennis. You know, she's a phenomenal tennis player at the core. Uh, so hopefully she's able to come into her form this year and you know I'm not sure that she's going to be competing and winning slams again but I do think that she could go further towards the latter end of the, of the season Okay so don't expect too much just this week Not yet no. Okay alright good stuff thanks very much for that Jenny Anything else? Do we oh, miss anything? Looking forward to this now what are your, What's your prediction Colin? Both yeah. sides um, I think Djokovic and Fiontek Okay mm. safe bet I, I think it has to be like but it needs like it needs, it needs another star to come through it needs yeah. to start to come I forget the I, I'm hoping that someone goes on a run, basically. Oh, it's only 21. I do think we need to. has been around for years. Yeah, it's only 21, yeah, and three, three grand sums already. I think we need to look out for this guy, Holger Rune, on oh, the men's yes. side. Yeah, the, uh, the Danish player. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he's going to be something else. And, you know, we talk about rivalries in the future. I go, yes, we want to see Alcaraz Djokovic. I'd love to see this Alcaraz Rune. Mm. Uh, they're same age and play very similar styles of tennis. So I think that's going to be something. He, he'll be somebody to look out for and a rivalry to look forward to. Well, we'll keep you up to date on the crack with Djokovic across our social channels and across all the news bulletins as the day progresses for you. But that is OTBAM for you today. Brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Back tomorrow, we'll be in Melbourne with Catherine Murphy. We'll get the first on the ground update of this year's Australian Open. Courtney Cronin will be on to chat NFL. Tom Brady up against the Dallas Cowboys tonight. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 